Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What do you like listening to? Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music. The podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, I'll need them, but so fucking what? As always, it's about the two people with me, and this time they are David Stubbs. Hello there. And Simon Price. Hello. And can I just congratulate you on one of your very best A-Up pop craze youngsters that time? That was something Thank else. Thank you. As time <laughs> goes on, you build and build and build, but the problem is, you know, how far can it go? <laughs> it could go or it could go wrong one time and in fact it already has i i uh, lost last uh, last episode I, I lost my voice for about uh, 3 minutes okay during a really um a really uh, sabbath like uh, a up you pop crazy youngster so got to watch that so anyway Anything pop and interesting happening in your lives, chaps? Well, I've just uh, not long ago come back um, of holiday in, uh, in in New Orleans, and oh. uh, which um, uh, a city which is, um, as luck would have it, going to come up once or twice in this episode. Yes, so indeed. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll say no more for well, now. Well, you went to Motown as well, didn't you, you bastard? I did, yeah. Stopped off for a couple of days in Detroit, went to actual Motown, stood there on the spot where the Temptations sang their vocal harmonies, and yeah, it was as close to a sort of holy pilgrimage for a, a pop-crazed oldster like me as you can get, really. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very jealous. Very jealous of you. Did you Did you ever sing? Yeah, they do this thing where they stand you all in a line, you know, there'll be about sort of 15 or 20 of you on the tour, and they get you to sort of slide from side to side doing hand claps and singing My Girl by The Temptations, which sounds cheesy as fuck, but when you're Sounds well Bucklins. Yes, but when you're there in the actual room, you just forget all your self-consciousness and just go with it and belt it out and just at the top of your voice, just really going for it. Yeah, it was was just something I'll never forget. David! Yeah. It's nearly book time, isn't well, it? Oh, yeah. Uh, August 2nd, Mars Bar 1980. There's tremendous excitement. Is there a URL or anything you want to throw at the, the pop No, what I'm doing is every day I'm sort of tweeting some sort of, you know, history of electronic music type related thing on Twitter. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at my Twitter account, it's pretty much exclusively dedicated to that now. I've uh, swept all frippery aside, you know, and just getting straight down to the business of um, huckstering and uh, flogging and all that kind of stuff. Is, is that your send Victorious? Twitter account, he says helpfully. It, it is the one. Send victorious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was going to say you didn't. You, you weren't. You weren't doing it that well, David. If you weren't no. shoving the fucking Twitter account of people's asses right from the Absolutely. start. Absolutely. You know. yeah, yeah. I've come to learn that. You see, I'm shit at that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, before we go any further, we have a letter I'd like to read to you. We don't get many letters, mainly because we don't give out any address. Letter. Or anything, but, so somebody. But this one, an actual letter that somebody put. A stamp on an envelope. No, no, uh, no. Well, I'm saying a letter because yeah. it's been Fair printed enough. out on a bit of paper. Yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it goes like this. 
<clears throat> Dear chart music and all pop crazed youngsters, <laughs> as a long time listener, I took particular interest in something Al said in a recent episode and would like to concur wholeheartedly with what he said. I should know, for I was there at Westglade Junior School in the late 70s yes. and witnessed firsthand the reign of terror of Bummer Dog. <laughs> <laughs> there were many incidents involving Bummer Dog having his way with an unfortunate child, but one in particular springs to mind during a vital playtime football clash between Mr. Dakin's class and Mr. Walker's class. Halfway through, the entire playground stopped as one at the sound of the words, Bummer Dog! Bummer Dog! which would fill the air as soon as he lumbered into view. Tongue lolling, with a glint in his eye that meant only one thing. Someone was going to get thrusted. <laughs> the thing about Bummer Dog you need to realise, he had an almost civilian indiscrimination towards his prey. We knew that everyone on that playground was fair game, so we scattered like legs and co when Dave Lee Travis enters their dressing room. <laughs> Suddenly, Bummer Dog took off and made a beeline for one lad in particular, Tracy Unwin. Maybe he was attracted to the shininess of his mock leather jacket, which he always had zipped up to his throat. Maybe he was beguiled by the blonde, Gordon McQueen-like hair. <laughs> Maybe it was because he had the same name as half the girls in our school. For whatever reason, Tracy took flight and started to climb the ten-foot-high mesh fence that surrounded our school. Bummer Dog responded to this by soaring upward like Steve Austin did when he needed to get to the top of a very high block of flats, wrapped himself around Tracy's leg, dragged him down, and proceeded to sate his lust. Jesus Christ. The rest of us looked on with a mixture of pity and relief which was drowned out by our screams of laughter and over-exaggerated pointing. Eventually, Bummer Dog was shooed off by a teacher who accidentally on purpose seemed to take ages to relieve the poor lad, trudging across our playing field like a footballer who has been subbed in injury time, trying to run down the clock. I can still hear Tracy's screams today. Regards, Gareth Murden. P.S. The other dog that had gone out like a pair of pineapples in a stocking was just known as Bollock Dog, as far as I can recall. <laughs> well, thank you, Gareth, for justifying what I said and correcting me on one thing. Really appreciate that. Absolutely. I'm gone. Absolutely excellent. Fucking gone. <laughs> when I heard when, when I heard the previous podcast that had Bummer Dog on it, I totally fucking lost it, and I've been laughing about it ever since. And just when we were getting ready to do this podcast today, I was thinking, please don't mention Bummer Dog, you absolute fucking bastard. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I, I reckon every school in Britain in the seventies had a Bummer Dog. I think it's a real nineteen seventies thing. Yeah, um, the mustard does. I, it, it's kind of, almost like this sort of folk memory that it tapped into in me. That I'm, I'm sure we had a similar thing in our school. 
I mean, just dogs in general being yeah. on the loose in the playground is such a 1970s thing. It is, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, because everyone seemed to be moving out. So everything seemed to be pulled down and people were moving into blocks of flats or onto new estates. And a lot of dogs got left behind. They weren't like Grey Fires Bobby, though, were they? Yeah. They'd sit there and wait for the master to return. They just thought, oh, well, fuck it. I might as well <laughs> shag some kids' legs. <laughs> 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 it's awful, isn't it, man? In America, they have all these um, fences and security procedures to stop mentalists shooting loads of kids, and we have the same thing just to a, just for bummer dog. Well, this is it. I mean, if there was if if the menace of bummer dog raised its ugly head in the states, you know, Donald Trump and the NRA would be sure to say, if oh. only one teacher had a gun, if one <laughs> yeah. teacher had a gun, they could have put a stop to bummer dog. Yeah, or or an even randier dog. <laughs> to have oh, yeah. sex with bummer dogs. That's the logic, isn't it? Yeah. Get a fucking St. Bernard dosed up on Viagra and send it out there. Yes. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Of course, we need to thank the latest batch of people who put some work in for the set and laid the money down in the name of chart music. And those people are Stephen Eastwood, Sophie Hall, Hugh Rees, Bev Hislop, Lara Lean, Gareth Price. Andy Healing and the Yarborough and People's Glove Puppets. <laughs> they all heard the call, they all stepped up to the mark, and they all said, yes, chart music. We don't want you to end up living on cat food and having to play the EastEnders theme on a penny whistle underneath a cash point. Take this money and give us more of that fucking podcast. Thank you, everyone. And if you want to join them, don't forget www.patreon.com slash chartmusic. This week's episode was personally selected by the Pop Craze Youngsters on our Patreon account, and they chose well. Thanks to them, we're going all the way back to June the 22nd, 1973, with an episode hosted by none other than Kenny Everett. But if you think it's the one where he's dressed up as a yokel, which is the only episode in the BBC archive, you are wrong, sir or madam, because this is an earlier one. It's an off-air taping, and it came right out of the collection of someone I don't know, purloined in a manner that I cannot remember. Oh, the BBC and their lack of attention to early episodes, eh? Still enrages me. I was going to say that the uh, what, what's great about this is that it's in black and white. Yes. And of course, this is what, therefore, I would have watched this in black and white. I mean, we didn't get colour telly until 1974 in our house, Ooh. but it, it really feels like it's, it's got the glow of colour. It's a bit like when I watch a 1970 World Cup. I mean, even though, yeah. you know, even though, you know, obviously, again, it's, it was in black and white, I watched at the Golden Sands Chalet Park in Widensea, you know, with a full <laughs> tournament. And, um, it, um, but you know, there was something about that kind of satellite broadcast, and the players had a kind of sort of glow and a sort of grain about them, or whatever, mm. that kind of exuded the sort of you know the classic sort of you know lemons and limes or whatever of like in the Brazilian kit. Yeah. Um, so this actually possibly, it, there, even though I don't actually quite remember seeing this episode, it probably set off a few more kind of little kind of you know Prussian whiffs and what have you. Um, because yeah, this is actually exactly. I mean, it was broadcast in colour. Um, I take it, but it's this is how. It have actually most of us folks would actually have watched yeah, it man because you know i said earlier we didn't have one until about 1977 or something i lied my arse off because uh after that episode i had a chat with my mum and i said you know when did we have color telly we didn't have one in the 70s did we and she said what what are you going on about we had one in 1967 i went what i had no recollection of this yeah. at all 
And I said, that must have cost an absolute bomb. He says, oh, yeah, we didn't didn't go on holiday for a year or two. You know, scrimped and saved and all that kind of stuff. I said, why Why did you get a colour telly? <laughs> and she said, someone told me, Dad, in the pub that Batman in colour was the greatest thing ever. And so we went out and bought a colour telly. That was my dad's psychedelic experience in 1967. Well, this is, that was, there was a delay, really, wasn't there? Because 1967 is the year that culture, pop culture is supposed to blossom into colour with Sgt. Pepper and Hibidum and all that. Mm. But it was still in black and white for most yeah. people. The year that actually that life blossomed into colour was about 1974. That's when most people... Yeah. I mean, there was one that our next-door neighbours, but the first ever programme I saw on colour TV was in 1971. Sorry about this, Simon. It was the Arsenal-Liverpool FA Cup final, May the 8th, 1971. <laughs> um... And, of course, even then, it wasn't really quite coloured. It was sort of tinted, really. It was a bit like, I don't know if I remember yeah. that Coronation Street episode where Eddie Yates comes in and, you know, to yes. Stan Hilders. And he's got this kind of, you know, don't forget that freaking call the telly. So I've got this great device. And it, it brings in this kind of sort of <laughs> plastic screen type thing that's kind of blue at the yeah. top and green at the bottom. And Stan says, oh, yeah, it's good, good for racing and all that. And Hilders says, we're not having that. Um, but, yeah, it was... Um, but another thing about tellies is... There's a, uh, recently there was that film, the Alan Bennett film, The Lady in the Van, and in that um, you, you learn that his house is valued at thirty five thousand pounds in Camden in nineteen seventy. That house is now worth three and a half million, about a hundred times that. Meanwhile, he got a yeah. scene set on a TV on the high street with a television for sale for a hundred and ten pounds. Well, I mean, you can get a telly for one hundred and ten pounds now, you know, and it's it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, price. isn't it? It's extraordinary. If only we could live in tellies. Yeah, eh? yeah. <laughs> I mean, people who know more about um, TV than us will probably be able to, uh, you know, tell us the exact details of this. But there was that interesting period in the late sixties where um, the type of black and white that was broadcast changed, didn't it? And it became very sharp. Yeah. So there was this sort of very yeah, brief extra lines. Yeah. There's this very brief two or three year period where stuff that was filmed in black and white actually looks really cool and really sharp. It wasn't just like mm. a fuzzy, grainy image such as, you know, one sees of the Queen's coronation. Um, yeah. But having a black and white telly in the 70s led to all kinds of misapprehensions. David talks about, you know, he reckons he could kind of perceive the lemons and limes of the Brazil kit. But I had the opposite thing that I, I got things wrong. For example, watching um, the ITV uh, kids show Rainbow, um, you had, you know, yeah. Zippy, Bungle and George. Um, I didn't know what um, George was, but I thought, just looking at George, that it was a cow because I, yeah. I couldn't see the colour that it was. It just looked like a cow-shaped thing to me. And it turns out yeah. that it's it's a hippo and it's kind of yeah. bright pink. Not the hippos are pink either, for that matter. But, but you know no. what I mean? So uh, there was this thing. And I, I wonder if uh, people watching this episode or any episode of Top of the Pops... Uh, we're looking at people's shirts and thinking, oh, it's a, a nice shirt, but I wonder what colour it is, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, at the time, you know, there'd be pop black oh, on yeah. and uh, oh yeah, uh, stuff like that, you know. It was it was just something you kind of dealt with. I mean, I had, I, I, you know, when I watched telly, most of it was in black and white because it, it was on a portable telly in my bedroom. So, but still, this episode, um, if I'd have seen it, when it came out, I would have seen it in black and white because my dad was watching fucking Emmerdale Farm or something. He would, you know, as I've said before, he wouldn't let me watch Top of the Pops. So it'd be around Tony Bones's house if I was a lad that night. <laughs> if I'd been a good lad. Radio 1 News. 
So, what was in the news this week? Well, at least 13 people and probably a lot more are massacred at an airport in Buenos Aires during the return of Juan Perón after 18 years of exile in Spain. Nixon and Brezhnev signed the first SALT treaty in Camp David. Two British soldiers are killed by two separate booby trap bombs in Northern Ireland. 81 male tennis players announced a boycott of Wimbledon a week before the tournament due to a row over the banning of a player. The Race Relations Board proposes a banning of colour bars in sports club and working men's clubs. The Rocky Horror Show has its premiere at the Royal Court Theatre. But the big news this week is that Gilbert O'Sullivan's drummer's wife has just won £140,000 on the football pools. On the cover of the NME this week, Wings. On the cover of the TV Times, Gerald Harper in Hadley. The number one LP in the UK is Pure Gold, an EMI compilation LP. And straight in at number two this week, Touch Me by Gary Glitter. (laughs) Over in America, the number one single is My Love by Paul McCartney and Wings. And the number one LP is Living in the Material World by George Harrison. So, me boys, what were we doing? In the summer of '73. Summer of '73. I was um, I was still kind of probably inwardly celebrating Sunderland having been Leeds United um, in yeah. the FA Cup, um, and in fact I was temporarily a Sunderland fan. I was so pleased about it. I had this real detestation of Leeds um, at the time, Leeds United. I think partly because I was born in London and only moved up to Leeds when I was about six weeks old. Yeah. And I think I always felt in exile from the smoke, you know, the big smoke and all that. And we used to go down there a lot more, but then my Grandma and granddad, old seven days jankers, moved up to Leeds to be nearer to us. So um, I, you know, we never got to go down there. I used to go to Wembley and stuff like that. I really kind of, you know, felt this kind of, you know, sort of deeply nostalgic Englishing for London, the swing 60s, like Uncle Martin, you know, sort of like, you know, Beatles type shoes and stuff like that. And a little dance set record player and all that. And I just felt in exile from all of that. And I took it out on Leeds United for some reason because they just represented all that was kind of dour and dirty about Leeds and Yorkshire and all that. So, um, yeah, I was, you know, I was absolutely made up when Sunderland beat them. And I watched it in black and white. In fact, it's the last FA Cup final I watched in black and white, as it happens. So I think I was still revelling in that. I think I kind of supported Leeds United in in the way that a small child can support anyone, you know, because they were the only football team I'd heard of and they had that smiley badge. Right. But um, anyway, yeah... Um, I was five years old and I was living with my grandparents. Um, My mum and dad had just split up and I can remember them shouting insults at each other as my mum led me away from the house. Um, So we moved in with my mum's parents for a while. Um, My granddad was a printer by trade and he'd been a Morse code man in Egypt during the war. And uh, when the war ended, he came to Barry and set up his own print shop in the, um, and, uh, uh, he, he bought um, a, a nice big house in, in a nice part of town. For anyone who knows, uh, believe it or not, Barry does have a nice part of town. Uh, for anyone who knows oh. Barry, that's the nap I'm talking about. Um, and, and my room was the tiny spare room, which w- whenever I think of it now, I, I imagine uh, Vincent van Gogh's um, bedroom in Arles. Uh, it had this these kind of uh, <laughs> blue-green curtains, which were patterned in these sort of glassy swirls like the bottom of an old wine bottle and it's it's funny right. how these these things just stay stay with you just these tiny little images stay in your mind um i, I know that i remember there was, there was some woods around the back of the house which i loved exploring and there was a boating lake 
with swans down the bottom of the street. And um, this would have been the school summer holidays, of course, so I would have been spending a lot of time at the beach nearby. So I was probably having quite a nice life on, on a day-to-day basis. But with, you know, divorce trauma in the recent past and a bit of uncertainty about what, what the future might hold. Um, pop music barely existed in my life yet. Um, my grandparents mm. were into classical in a, in a light sort of way. Yeah. But um, only a month after this episode of Top of the Pops, I would own my first ever single, yes. which, uh, as we've previously established, was I'm the Lead of the Gang, I Am by Gary Glitter. So there was absolutely no chance you'd, you'd seen this episode? None whatsoever. No. Actually, it occurs to me there's another thing that was happening to me at this time. On Saturday nights, as a treat, I was allowed to stay up late. Um, and so that meant, you know, like I was the long wait and match of the day. Um, <laughs> so you have to watch Parkinson. And by God, you know, I mean, it was a bit like, you know, if you think like waiting in tomorrow's world, you know, waiting for that to end, so the top of the pops comes on. And it was um, yeah. like waiting for Parkinson to end. It was just every week it had the same bloody turgid thing. You get some old Hollywood grandee, like. First one week it'd be Kerry Grant, and you know there'd be this long, windy anecdote. And anyway, this lovely lady came up to me and said, "Oh my gosh, I'm such a big fan of yours, and I have your autograph." And so I gave her my autograph and said, "Oh, thank you, Mister Stewart." You know, and the ordinary gales of laughter. Next week, Jimmy Stewart would come on, and anyway, <laughs> and anyway this this. This lady came up, this wonderful lady, and said, oh, I'm such a big fan of yours. I've seen all your films. Can I have your autograph? So I gave her my autograph, and then she said, oh, thank you, Mr. Grant. You know, and Gail's all, fuck it now. Come on. Oh, and it's about half an hour to go. Um, golden so, yeah. age of television. Indeed, yeah. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC Water started the day with schools and colleges programmes, followed by the second test at Lords between England and New Zealand, then Chigler, the news, then more cricket and racing from Royal Ascot, then they pile into Deputy Dog, Jackanora, Dactare, the Wombles, the news, nationwide, and they've just finished Disney Carnival. BBC Two begins the morning with Play School, then shuts down for four and a half hours before coming back with a repeat of Play School, then it's more cricket, followed by the Open University. ITV has broadcast schools programmes, The Galloping Gourmet, where Graham Kerr shows your mum how to prepare and serve packets of chicken and cocky leaky soup. Then it's a drama series, Dr. Simon Locke. Then David, the proto-Jeffrey, shows Bungle some rabbits and tortoises in Rainbow, followed by Happy Ass, the inverse What's My Line quiz show Cuckoo in the Nest, Crown Court, General Hospital, About Women, then Racing from Red Car, The Romper Room, Lift Off with Aisha with Slade, The Partridge Family, ITN News, Regional News in Your Area, The Harvest Prepare for Their Camping Holiday and Crossroads, and they're about to start the Huey Green quiz show, The Sky's the Limit. Fucking hell, a lot of shit going on on ITV. Do you remember, you, you, of course, in those days you had the TV, you, you'd have a little kind of click thing on the side, and BBC One was t- number two, and ITV yeah. was number ten. Remember that, yeah? Which seemed to imply yeah. that in the forthcoming years there'd be several editions, you know, there would be a Channel yeah. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. None of which really, well, obviously BBC Two materialised, but then it was ages before Channel 4. Yeah, it was about 18 years between BBC Two and Channel 4, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right then, pop craze youngsters, it's time to get down to 73. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. (laughs) 
6.55 on Thursday, June the 21st, 1973, and the BBC is about to run the musical event of the evening, the 1962 Elvis film Girls, Girls, Girls. So where the fuck is Top of the Pops, you may ask? Well, it's been moved to Fridays since April until falling ratings forced the BBC to put it back in its rightful slot, a lesson they didn't heed when they moved it back to Fridays in 1996. What the fuck's that all about? Yeah, terrible. Terrible decision. It's not right, is it? I mean, Thursday night was, you know, it was kind of ideal, really. But it's so, you know, I mean, it really would have thrown my rhythm, you know, um, coming on on a Friday. And, of course, there'd be other competing interests, mm. you know. You'd have to sort of, I mean... You know, there's obviously kind of demand to sort of, you know, see whatever is on, you know, at a certain time. And, and maybe, yeah. you know, like just after tomorrow's world, the field is clear. On Friday night, you've got all kinds of things yeah. competing. And, uh, yeah, and it would be dark to get a look in. Apart from anything else, I mean, the question we always ask at the end of this uh, podcast, what, what are we talking about in school the next day? You're not talking about anything at school <laughs> the next day. There is no school. Yeah. So I mean, seriously, oh. it, it would it would genuinely affect the power of the program because you wouldn't yes. have you know what the Americans call water cooler moments or you know yeah. we would call kettle moments, um, or in the sense of the playground, the getting away from bomber dog <laughs> moments, <laughs> those brief moments of respite when you're not being pursued by a lusty Great Dane. Yeah, mm. um, <laughs> sorry, should mention bomber dog. <laughs> Again. I'm sorry, man. I'll, t- I'll, 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 I'll stay away from it from now oh, on. <laughs> Thursday night is absolutely perfect, isn't it? Mm. You know, Friday night is for dossing around school when there's no school to go to, or the or the shopping precincts, or you know, the youth club, or actually going out into town. Yeah. The thing about Top of the Pops on Thursday is you do feel you're getting a bit of a jump on the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is it. It's a hint. You know, it's not long now. Yeah, and you, 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 you're already thinking about the the two hours of swap shop stroke tis was that's uh, awaiting you around the corner. Exactly. Born in Seaforth, Merseyside in 1944, Morris Cole was an apprentice baker in Liverpool who spent his wages on two Grundig reel-to-reel tape recorders and sent a demo to tape recording magazine in 1963. The editors were so impressed that they wrote... When you've finished signing up guitar-bashing, hollering teenagers with about as much talent as a mentally retarded orangutan, take time out to pay a visit to young Morris Cole. Take him back to the recording studio, provide him with a tape recorder, a record transcription deck, a pile of records of his own choice and an editing block. Then leave him to it. Don't try to direct, produce or stage manage him. Just leave him alone to get on with it. You'll have quite a pleasant surprise. Are you taking this down, BBC? After the tape was passed on to the BBC, he was invited down to Bush House to be interviewed on air and have his demo played. He was then given an audition and offered a presenting job on the light programme, but he had already joined the pirate station Radio London and changed his name to Kenny Everett. He immediately formed a partnership with Dave Cash, who played his straight man, but he was sacked in 1965 for taking the piss out of the station's main sponsor, Garner Ted Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God. So he moved on to Radio Luxembourg for a year. In early 1967, he was finally picked up by the BBC, becoming one of the original DJs on the brand new Radio 1. 
where he stayed until he was sacked in 1970 for a Melody Maker interview where he slagged off the Musicians' Union and his inference on air that the Minister of Transport's wife had passed her driving test after slipping her instructor a fiver. However, he remained a BBC employee, recording shows for local radio from his home studio, until he was welcomed back to Radio 1 in this year, 1973, and given an hour every Sunday at 1pm, between Dave Lee Travis and Savile's Travels. What a sandwich that is. Not only that, but he's also been anointed with a presenting job on Top of the Pops. And this is one of the six episodes that he got to present. But what we don't know is that he's already accepted a job at the soon-to-be-launched Capital Radio and is on his way out. You know, I I don't think I was even aware of him until the 80s. Um, by, by which point, you know, when he's on TV, and, and I, I think I appreciated him then as a kind of anarchic presence on a on a Saturday night um and until he uh, endorsed the Tories of course you know yeah let's address did... this straight away he was <laughs> apparently invited to appear at the young conservative rally in the run up to the 83 general election and he said he did it because he'd been egged on by Michael Winner and they asked him first um do you want to know who else was at that rally well, it was presented by Bob Monkhouse and Jimmy Tarbuck, yeah. and it featured Freddie Truman, Sharon Davis, Lindsay DePaul, and Mick McManus. Oh, Christ. Fucking Mick McManus. I mean, barrel scrapings, a lot of them, but the thing, I mean, you, you expect that lot to be Tories, but Kenny mm. Everett, somehow, you know, there's this idea he's one of us, or he was like our guy. Um, mm. So to see him there with his big foam hands going, let's bomb Russia. Let's kick Michael Foot's stick away. Yes. It was it was a real disappointment, and for that he was he was dead to me from that moment onwards. It's like oh fuck you, you know. But yeah. you know, up until that point, I you know I I used to watch his show on TV. Um, I had no idea that he was a DJ because I didn't live in London, didn't hear Capital, yeah. all of that. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean it's it's only in retrospect really that I've I've learned anything about his radio career, and it, it seems that he was actually quite an innovator. From, yes, from what I can gather. So. Maybe he was. I mean, quite often, you know, the term genius is sort of bandied about with him, you know, the way it is with like Chris Evans, but without any particular kind of backup, you know, there's just the vague things that he innovated. Now, possibly he did innovate certain things, perhaps before him, you know, that kind of zany sort of coloured rim spectacles type humour, you know, was, was something completely yeah. novel and unknown, you know, to, to the British Isles or to any other part of the sort of globe. And, but, I mean, it's it's depressing. First of all, there's an element, and you find it, it show, apart from, I mean, he doesn't, he's a bit like Jimmy Savile. You get the impression he's somebody who's kind of riding the kind of, you know, crest of like the 60s and 70s and pop without really knowing anything at all about music or having any kind of sense, you know, sensibility. And I think, you know, the fact that he did do that sort of Tory party conference just shows how utterly oblivious he was to the sort of the way that things were drifting at that time and what a kind of heinous thing that was to have done, you know, even if he wasn't actually particularly a Tory, just somebody that's kind of oblivious to all of that. Um, But, um, yeah, so, I mean, he knows who, you know, well, we'll, you know, I think we probably knows who the Beatles are, but that's about it, really. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, he was, he, was, he was well in with the Beatles, wasn't he, by the late 60s? He did their Christmas tapes. Yeah, yeah he, he did. did their last two yeah. yeah. And but, well, he did the interview with them for the White Album. Mm. I mean, none yeah, of them really did. did. Really like the only people that seem to have known anything about music are John Peel and actually Tony Blackburn, who genuinely knew his soul. Yes. Um, yeah. 
But um, another thing, I suppose, a lot of the kind of humour, and you get it throughout, you know, the show from Kenny Everett, it's it's going into sort of multiple voices, silly voices, a bit Robin Williams-like, every voice but your own, mm. as if you can't bear to kind of, um, almost as if it's some sort of manic it's depressive thing, you can't bear to be yourself, yeah. And yeah. maybe it's also to do with, I mean, obviously Kenny Everett was gay. I mean, as far as we're concerned, homosexuality was invented in 1975 with the naked civil servant. You know, there's absolutely yeah. no understanding whatsoever about camp and things like that. But I mean, clearly, you look at a lot of the way that you kind of cavorts and around, you know, is, is camp at Christmas. And again, you know, it's, I want to sort of be in disguise, you know, take, in drag, you know, in spoof, you know, take on other voices, you know, rather than admit or say what you actually are because you can't. I mean, in his defence, Kenny Everett was one of many... Uh, radio DJs who wanted to be on telly and wasn't interested in music, but he was the only one that was totally upfront about that. Mm. Mm. I mean, there's that interview of him in the uh, the 1917 Man Alive documentary called The Disc Jockeys, and yet he's absolutely painfully shy. He wants to get off the embarrassing subject of him. He doesn't feel that he, Kenny Everett, the person, is important, it's, but he feels the facade that he puts up uh, is and he goes to great lengths to show to you how much effort goes in to yes. creating a tiny bit of radio and where it, it everyone else like is just piling into the studio and bellowing. Mm. But it, mm. it, it does look like he puts an incredible amount of, of work in um, in that documentary, um, which the documentary describes him as the enfant terrible and the, the Spike Milligan of Radio 1, which is perhaps mm. over-egging it a bit. But yeah, we, we do see him in the studio using sound effects carts on some kind of silly skit. But then we see him at home, don't we, where yeah. uh, he lives with his dog, his parrot, and the biggest surprise of all, his wife, Audrey. Uh, that, was, <laughs> that was the biggest shock, um, it, who, who'd previously been with uh, Billy Fury. Uh, That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I thought that, and, and you know, I, apparently his, his friends advised him against getting married, but he, you know he thought it might turn him straight somehow. It, it was a weird kind of weird, mm. weird thing that he, he almost tried to force himself to, to normalise like that. Um, but I, I thought an interesting thing that he says in the BBC Man Live documentary, he says that he doesn't think pop records are important enough to be included no. in the culture bracket, and, and yes. he thinks they're trite. Now, this, in, in a weird way, tallies with something I read in Tony Blackburn's Poptastic book, because they, they were good friends, mm. Um they they had like, nicknames for each other. Uh, um, yes, he he called uh, uh, Tony Blackburn Bessie, and uh, Tony Blackburn called him Edith. But um, <laughs> uh, in that book, it turns out that Kenny Everett had trained as a Catholic priest, but um, he gave it up when he remembered he didn't believe in God. And I thought yes. it was a similar thing in a way. You know, he's he's a DJ who doesn't believe in pop, and yeah. you know this this whole kind. You know, he's he just sort of moved from one kind of fraudulent facade to another to another. In in mm. a way, yeah, you're right about the about the pop music thing because you know I've listened to a lot of his old shows and he will always wang in a big chunk of classical music, right? And you know basically say you know no right you've listened we've listened to the frivolity and the, all the nonsense now here's some real music yeah this idea of shame and guilt and guilt you know for what what he is you know because um, you know I mean it wasn't until you know homosexuality wasn't legalized in 1967 and I mean you know and people are almost defined like Kenneth Williams and maybe Kenny Everett's agree are almost defined by how tortured they are with guilt and self-loathing about just what they are mm, yeah yeah and both Tories <laughs> <laughs> and Barry Cryer reckons he was taking the piss out of the the, the Nuremberg rally vibe of of this whole event 
Yeah, I mean, I've I've got friends who are massive fans of Kenny Everett, and that's pretty much the line that they adhere to yeah. on on that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I I can kind of just about see that as a get out. Um, I, I I don't think he was really a political creature, to be honest. Um, despite that, he said he wasn't a full Tory, but he hated Arthur Scargill. Yes, and he thought Arthur Scargill was Hitler. <laughs> that's right. Yes, and like and like all DJs of that era, they're kind of like they're honour bound to hate Labour for um, stopping the pirates. Yeah, there was that stopping the pirates. And also, DJs are sort of inherently kind of almost these sort of freelance characters who believe that they're self-made men and, and any idea yes. that they're somehow uh, beholden to the social contract is is um, anathema to them. Um, yeah. Uh, David mentioned that the whole idea of whether or not Kenny Everett was a genius, and I, I, I agree that, that that is an exaggeration. But um, mm. I went... When when you look at it, he you know he 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 was genuinely talented. I think mm. it's fair to say he was you know highly talented, particularly at mucking around with with real to real tape. You know, so, yeah. so that the the Beatles indeed did ask him to put together those fan club records every Christmas, mm. which apparently became increasingly bizarre as as a result of that. And when you look at uh, after him came people like Adrian Just, who who mm. did the same thing but with far yeah. less far less charm. Um, and also, also uh, on 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 the shyness thing um, from Tony Blackburn's Poptastic, uh, Blackburn describes him as wildly extrovert in front of an audience and yet painfully shy, alienated and alone off air. And um, yeah. I, I wonder if that somehow um, explains that kind of uh, manic thing of of constantly changing voices and all of that. Um, mm. for, for example. Uh, in, in in this episode, uh, we we see him. I mean, he, he looks exactly. We have to say exactly like Abraham Lincoln, doesn't he? Um, mm. Which is it's really weird. Once you, yeah, uh, when, once you get that into your head, it's basically Abraham Lincoln uh, presenting top of the pops. But for, for for someone who's who's generally thought of, or certainly by a lot of people, as a comedy genius, a lot of his presenting style involves frantic kind of mugging facially and and um yeah. and and talking in a comedy northern accent and and there's there's a mm. certain strain of british light entertainment which holds that saying anything in a northern accent immediately makes it funny um and and, yeah. and he falls back on that quite a lot in this episode which which yeah. i think tells you something about his general kind of nervousness and uncertainty about himself it was, you know, it was the yeah. 70s, and Northerners and Germans were inherently amusing. Yes. <laughs> and the anime. Yeah, yeah. I think the Kenny <laughs> Edward video show, I remember watching that in the late 70s. I didn't yes. think it was bad, actually. Um, it's probably, it was pretty brutal. I loved it. Yeah. I think that, that wasn't bad, to be honest, in fairness. I mean, I'm sure it's dated a bit now, but it was, that actually wasn't that bad. Well, he's one of the few people who actually crossed over from BBC to ITV and was better. Probably the only one, actually. Mm. And when he crossed mm-hmm. back to the BBC, he got reined in again. I think the BBC was, you know, obviously the biggest kind of outlet at the time, as, as it probably still is today. But, it, you know, he seems very restricted by it. And he, and as we'll see in this episode, we see him kind of like kick against that a little bit. But uh, ITV, Barry Cryer, perfect. <laughs> And welcome to Top of the Pops. Can you do it? Can you do it? Do it like it 
white trousers and shirt under a denim jacket makes a great show of reading from a script as he introduces a top 30 rundown, accompanied by the sound of Can You Do It? by Jordi. Formed in Newcastle in 1970 from members of the local nightclub cabaret group The Jasper Heart Band, USA were a rock band who signed up to Regal Zonophone in 1972 and changed their name to Jordi. Their first single, Don't Do That, got to number 32 in December of 1972, leading them to be picked up by EMI. This is their first single and the follow-up to All Because of You, which got to number 6 in April of this year and it's gone up 11 places from number 31 to number 20. Now, before we get into Jordan and anything else, that introduction by Everett, it, it does seem that he's, uh, he's uh, someone's given him a talking to about not fucking about and getting on with it. I actually it. think, oddly enough, I actually think that was quite ingenious, actually. The fact that he just reads four or five words off a sheet like that, it's deeply, deeply sarcastic. And I thought that's the funniest mm. thing he does in the show. Well, one thing I noticed about, about this, actually, is that loads of Kenny Everett's links appear to be filmed separately. Um, so that for for a long time, I was wondering, is anyone actually in the studio with him, band-wise? And it's for ages, yeah. until the fourth song, there's not one clip where there's evidence of him being in the studio with a band. There's not one kind of panning shot from him to the band. Yeah. It's all fades and it's all voiceovers. And I, I wondered what, why that was. Did he keep screwing them up or did he get told yeah. off for doing, doing them wrong? I, I don't know. It's very odd. I mean, because he's done television before, he's got he's already had about three series of uh, shows under his belt. There was Nice Time for Granada in 1968, and then there was the Kenny Everett Explosion for the BBC in 1970, and then he went straight on to doing a show called Ev, and then he did a show for uh, BBC Two called Up Sunday. So that's actually four series under his belt. So he's a lot more experienced mm. as a TV presenter than pretty much anyone else on the the top of the pops presenting roster. I guess so, yeah. The other thing is, of course, is that, you know, to my mind, he makes the mistake that most DJs do when it comes to top of the pops. Uh, they don't seem to realise that no one's ever knelt down in front of a telly with their fingers crossed as Tomorrow's World's finishing, going, oh, please be Dave Lee Travis, mm. please be Dave Lee Travis. You know, you don't mm. care who the presenter is. It's all about the it's all about the act. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was making note of that in this particular thing. Yeah. So... Jordi, where do we start? I mean, this is all right. Um, and uh, old uh, Andy Cap there has uh, clearly got a he's got a good rock voice. Yes. Uh, um, Brian Johnson, of course, not not Brian Johnston, the cricket commentator. Mm. Um, uh, and um, <laughs> he, even at this point, yeah, you can hear he's got a good rock voice, and obviously he ended up in ACDC. Um, but listening to Jordi yes. is actually a valuable exercise in proving just why ACDC were necessary, I think. Because um, ACDC brought a new discipline and a focus and a minimalism and an aggression to, to hard rock. And and in comparison, I just think bands like Geordie sound sloppy and kind of sprawling. And um, I, I think he was perfect, actually, um, uh, Brian Johnson, as a replacement for Bon Scott. But... If he hadn't joined ACDC, yeah. I don't think anybody would be remembering Geordie. No. Yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, I, I, I mean, I remember at the time, and I was a bit of a pop picker for sure, and I sort of saw them as essentially one-hit wonders. And it was extraordinary later on for you know Brian Johnson to be sort of disinterred from the early seventies and uh, placed uh, up front in ACDC. Um, I mean, groups like Geordie and Nazareth at the time, I just felt that you know, obviously everything was it was a straight. I mean, glam was a little bit strange, really, because. 
you didn't necessarily think it's, that these people were actually kind of um, making a great blow for anti-homophobia. I think there was probably a lot of homophobia within glam people themselves. I mean, like Adrian Street, that wrestler. Um, I think, you know, he was a bit sort of wary about, you know, about the... Uh, the gay boys yes. and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but I think that nonetheless, it was all desperately, really effeminate. And I think that probably sort of bricky bands like, you know, um, Geordie and I suppose Nazareth to a degree were considered, you know, a sort of necessary antidote by some people. And, you know, to be, to be a band playing that kind of music from that area automatically means that, oh, fucking hell, they must be absolutely fucking rock. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah it's why they call themselves Somerset, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so, as the music's playing, we get the top 30 rundown. Good quality of pictures in this era, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested by the kind of visual aesthetic of this episode. Because um, in, in the studio, in the background, there's a, a, a picture you keep seeing of a figure on a motorbike that's like, um, yeah. a, cro- it's like a cross between Tom of Finland and, um, and George Dunning, who did Yellow Submarine. And, um, yeah. and I think that kind of Yellow Submarine aesthetic crossed with Terry Gilliam's Monty Python animations are yeah. what uh, they they're what informs the look of Top of the Pops around this time. It's kind of pitched yeah. halfway between psychedelia and glam. So you've got that, you know, crazy looking number 27, 26, 25 and so on. Yeah. And um and I, I I take it as an attempt by the BBC to kind of create something that's of youth culture rather than paternalistically making it a, a showcase for youth culture. Do you know what I mean? Also, yeah. might have been Magpie as well. I think one of the Zara, yes. Yes. The, those kind of uh, graphics that they have. We see a lot of uh, audience members dancing. Well, mm. right, we see girls dancing. I was just going to say that's really that's that's really quite striking in this episode. Um, you know, it seems, it seems to be mostly young women. I mean, normally, you know, you look at any Top of the Pops episode from any particular era up to about the early eighties when there's all that compulsory enthusiasm. Um, when they just look like they're dancing in a very sullen, sort of resentful way, as if they're being kind of, you know, told to dance inappropriate, awake or something like that. And it's what your Auntie Lucy would have wanted, you know, they're kind of doing it under some sort of protest. But, you know, there's, there's some real goers here. And, um, you know, they're, they're, yes, they're, they're, they're much more yeah. sort of, yeah, yeah, they really are quite into it. But like I say, there's, there's one bloke in the middle of it all kind of sort of leering sort of incredulously. Um, but yes. it's mostly, it's, it's almost like some sort of giant hen party has descended on the place. Yes, yeah, and it's a mixture of Bieber models and uh, the the office typing pool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. a dolly <laughs> mixture, if you will. Indeed. Oh, oh. hey, well done. <laughs> Just slap the back of my neck there. Yeah, 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 with your foot. Yes. <laughs> so, anything else to say about this song? No. no, it's just your bog standard chart intro song, isn't it? It just wafts in and wafts out yeah. again. It's like it'll do. Nobody will mind that it didn't get a proper airing, you know. Yeah. So the following week, can you do it? Nipped up two places to number eighteen and would eventually get to number thirteen. The follow-up, Electric Lady, would only get to number thirty-two in September of this year. The last time they sprayed their musk upon the charts. <laughs> the band split up in nineteen seventy-six, and lead singer Brian Johnson went solo for a while before forming Geordie Two in the late seventies. But when he was offered the recently deceased Bon Scott spot in ACDC, they were dissolved. But not before Johnson sang on an advert for the Hoover High Power Compact Vacuum Cleaner. Have you heard that? No. no. Oh, he really goes for it. Ah, oh, he really so, goes for it. It's it, yeah. It's straight away when this finishes, I'm going on YouTube. Right. Yeah. yeah. On the highway to Henry. 
<laughs> and we all know we all know why ACDC wanted Brian Johnson, don't we? Go on. No. According to Angus Young, Bon Scott saw Geordie live. He says, fucking hell, this gig was amazing. There's this guy there screaming at the top of his lungs. Uh, and then the next thing you know, he hits the deck and he's on the floor rolling around and screaming. Uh, I thought it was great. And then to top it off, you couldn't get a better encore. They came in and wheeled the guy off. So they got him in for an audition and he passed it. And then later on, Angus Young told Brian Johnson about this. And uh, Johnson said, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was the night I ended up in hospital with appendicitis. Welcome to Top of the Pops, and we've got fun and frolics and a load of excitement and thrills as we present to you number 15 in this week's Fab 40 or whatever it is. It's Junior Campbell and Sweet Illusion. doing a bit of comedy dancing, Everett welcomes us to Top of the Pops again and introduces Sweet Illusion by Junior Campbell. Born in Glasgow in 1947, William Campbell Jr. formed Dean Ford and the Gay Lords at the age of 14. After being signed to Columbia Records after auditioning for Norrie Paramore in 1964, they became successful across the Scottish gig circuit, but all four singles they released failed to make the UK charts. After supporting the Tremolos in 1966, however, they were encouraged to change their management, their label to CBS, and then their name to Marmalade. After their first four singles on CBS flopped, they made it all the way to number six with Loving Things in July of 1968. And when John Lennon refused to let the Beatles release Obladi Oblada as a single, describing it as Paul's granny music shit, Marmalade were offered it by Dick James before the White Album was released, and they recorded it unaware that it was a Lennon-McCartney song, taking it to number one in January of 1969. After four more top ten singles, Junior Campbell left the band in 1971, went solo and reached number ten with his second single, Hallelujah Freedom, in November of 1972. This is the follow-up and it's up this week from number 20 to number 15. Everett's dancing at the beginning, it's just, it's a, there's no need for it, is there? <laughs> Nah, I mean, you know, and it's it, and it's just like something, you know, just, oh, that's what you do to pop music, isn't it? You dance around like a baboon. That's what they do, the kids. Yeah. yeah. So this this song, uh, Junior Campbell, I didn't know that he was the uh, the lead singer of Marmalade. Yeah, I've, I've got a weird connection with mm. this guy, actually, because oh, yeah. his previous band, Marmalade, um, once lived in my old house in Holloway in London. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although, uh, presumably, they had the whole place, not not the uh, silverfish-infested, damp-ridden basement that was that was my lair. But yeah, I, I heard about it from the um, from the landlord when I moved in, and um, apparently, around the same time, um, 
the Beatles also lived in the street for a few days, um, sleeping in their tour van, which was parked outside the house of their publisher, just just down the street. Fuck. So Junior Campbell, um, he he looks like uh, a tough tackling, no nonsense centre back for St Mirren or Motherwell. Yeah. Um, the the kind that you'd see on a Panini sticker and flinch, um, imagining how hard life must be up in Scotland yeah. if if it breeds beasts like yeah. that. That you've already got four um, of when you want Kevin Keegan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The song, the song doesn't do much for me, but there's a nice bit of kind of Rod Stewart gravel to yeah. his voice. I think it's and, kind uh, of blue-eyed got... Northern Soul, isn't it? Very much. It's definitely very much a Northern Soul thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's strange because I don't know. You know, unseen. You know, think Sweet Illusion, Junior Campbell. The camera pans round. You see these two sort of, you know, like you know, sort of black backing vocalists, whatever. And then it pin- pins around to this lorry driver. Yes. Um, it's it's you know, it's a little it's a little bit odd. It's a little bit of a kind of you know dissonance there. But um, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's it's not it's a bit of sort of white sort of um, neo northern soul. You know, it's okay. Yeah, as, as um, Simon says, gravel. it's got a kind of pleasantly um, convivial feel to it. The song I've got this whole theory about convivial music of the seventies. I've probably talked about before, but including things like Lindisfarne and Wizard and Thin Lizzy, just. The, the idea of, of people in the pub on a Friday night with their arms around each other's shoulders, you know, and it's got that kind of vibe to it, I think. Yeah. I mean, not much to say about this clip, really, but the backing singers, I, I thought from the end credits that they're the Ladybirds who were, um, or, or certainly, you know, some kind of incarnation of the Ladybirds, who were, of course, regulars on the Benny Hill show, and, and they, they'd recorded course, with John yes. Entwistle and Mark Bolan and loads of others. Um, I noticed there's a, there's a bassist yeah. in the band who looks exactly like Dave Lee yes. Travis, which is... It's really upsetting. Really, it upsetting. was really, it was really disconcerting because I thought that that is that. It. I had to watch it about five times before I realised that it might not be Dave Lee Travis simply because he wasn't massive. Um, my my, my favourite bit though in the clip is where Campbell suddenly realises he, he's been directing his meaningful gaze at the wrong camera all along, and he just turns and corrects himself. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after I got over my, that is not Dave Lee Travis, because the thing was, I was looking to see how he was playing the bass, and it was really badly, and he was looking at the arse of the black backing yeah. singer. So that led me to think that was Travis. But then I thought it, this would have been known about. This would have been just as well known about as as John Peel with Rod Stewart. But then the other thing was, one of the backing singers, um, the white one, has got a... She's, she looks a bit Ronald McDonald-like. And then I looked at her again and I just went, is that grot bags? <laughs> because, <laughs> because the woman who played grot bags was a, a, a singer at the time. But... To me, if this was an instrumental, it would be absolutely perfect local radio um, sports special introduction music. Oh, yeah. You know, it'd be the kind of thing you'd hear in the chip shop when you've come out of the game listening <laughs> for uh, listening for the results in your division. Yeah. I think you know, I, I thought Northern Soul immediately um, when I heard this. And actually, for a long time, I genuinely did think that Northern Soul was soul produced in the north of England. You know, there was yeah. a part of Wigan and Dewsbury and Pontefract and places like that. And, you know, sometimes I was actually disabused of that. But in a way, it was probably things like this that would have sort of implanted that in me. It was geezers like this making this kind of music. And of course, actually, there was a lot of Northern Soul. I mean, what's his name? Um, um, Rod Temperton, you know, came from Grimsby. You know, you don't get more sort of deep soul than that. So, you know, it's understandable, really. So the following week, Sweet Illusion dropped four places to number 19. 
After releasing eight more singles, all of which failed to chart, he went on to study composition at the Royal College of Music, became an arranger and producer, and co-wrote the music for Thomas the Tank Engine. Peters and Lee provide our sit back and save a spot with a divine song that's left this week to number five, Welcome Home. I'm so long, my love without you. The camera pans down from a monitor showing the end of Sweet Illusion and goes to the back of the heads of the next act, Peters and Lee, with Welcome Home. We've already discussed Lenny Peters and Diane Lee and this song in Chart Music 17, so we'll just say that it's their debut single, it was released in the wake of their seven-week run as champions on Opportunity Knocks, and it's up this week from number 18 to number 5. Simon, me and David have kicked this one about, it's your turn. Yeah, I mean they were a low rent British carpenters, the crapinters. Um I'm I'm sure I'm I'm not alone. <laughs> the carpet fitters. The carpet fitters. Um I, I'm sure I'm not alone when I say that I thought the bloke's first name was Peters and the woman's first name was Lee. Um I, I had that confusion yes. as a child. Um so she's singing Welcome Home, Your Home Once More into his Royal Orbison Ray Bands, but of course, for all he knows, she's lying. He could be anywhere, and and indeed he is. He's in White City. Um, what what I think about this, um, this I think was the heart and blood beating through seventies Britain, um, or at least anyone over the age of twenty five. Um, this was mm. real mum and dad's music. Uh, if I, I, I remember, oh, yes. someone's mum had it when I was a kid. I had records by them, and you know, it's it's working men's club music. Um, it's not country and western as such nor is it continental european so um it's not schlager it's a very specific british thing it's spale ale it's stout smiled it's smiled stout spale ale indeed yeah um (laughs) of course um due to the walker's crisps advert we we now Mm. associate it with with gary lineker um arriving back from barcelona and in a way that sums it up um coming home from continental sophistication and flair to to this you know you know we often like these days people often say things like after brexit all pop will be like this or after brexit all Mm. all food will taste like this as a a damning indictment of any kind of crap culture well britain joined the common market on the 1st of january 1973 um but if it hadn't this is what british pop would have continued to sound like forever without the civilising influence of Europe. That's what I'm saying. Do you think so, though? I mean, surely Baccarat would have punctured the wall that we'd put around ourselves. I'm not sure. I just think... Well, no, I mean, for, for we're still interested in Europe. I mean, the, it's a genuine point that, you know, it, it sounds like a flippant thing, but um, joining the common market and, and, and all that kind of stuff made it easier for people to, to travel abroad and uh, Very made true. it easier for people to encounter uh, European music and European disco. Um, obviously, there was always going to be the influence of black American music coming to this country. But um, mm. yeah, I, I really think this is uh, this is very Britain. This is very sort of um, Little England. Um, 
and uh, it yeah it's, it's possibly the most British thing I can imagine. I think it's definitely true that um, yeah Baccarat and Civil con- Civil Convention came came on you know from Europe to drive out you know the likes of Peters and Lee and it does feel like you know the kind of thing where you've just endured a fortnight's holiday in um, Filey something like that and it's been thirteen degrees throughout in August <laughs> and this is the kind of you know and I back to this is like <laughs> you slug about home and it's just only marginally more miserable back home in your kind of miserable hovel but um it's it is is i mean that thing about you know like um Spale, i mean it is it, it's extreme mor it's taliban mor it's just like <laughs> it's absolutely moderate and sort of you know it's 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 almost like offensively inoffensive and of course you know calling them offense um i mean i did reiterate before the story about um, lenny peters and his and the dim view we took of um um black cab drivers not Drivers of black cabs, but cab drivers who were black, and he insisted um, on a white cab driver. At, uh, I just thought I'd reiterate that one, which is a bit ironic considering his condition. I was thinking, I mean, you know, like in yeah. it's a strange juxtaposition, you know, on his Wikipedia entry that he was an, an uncle of Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts. Yes, and he was blind in one eye due in a car accident when he was five years old. A thrown brick, a thrown brick, blinded his other eye when he was sixteen. <sighs> at which point he must have been thinking. Hey, you are fucking kidding, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. But just imagine the poor star, you know, like, you know, in later years, say he's in his 20s or 30s. Then Huey Green and... came along. Yes, yes, absolutely. But, you know, maybe it's for 10 years' time, and, like, you know, and it's just like little Charlie's about 12, you know, goes around to Uncle Lenny's and, you know, perhaps with his little mates, Mick and Keith, and you go, Uncle Lenny, tell us how you got blinded in both eyes, though, will yeah. you? Yeah, take off your sunglasses. <laughs> Let's have a look at your eyes, <laughs> yeah. the sockets. Meanwhile, they're flicking V signs at him, you know, as he's telling the story and sniggering or whatever. But, so. Oh, those Rolling yeah, Stones. By the way, Huey Green, uh, this is just a bit of an aside, but... Yeah. Um, if anyone hasn't read Danny Baker's the the third volume of, of Danny Baker's autobiography, oh yeah, oh my word, the stuff about Huey mm. Green and all I say is mm. swearing and train set. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> I'm fucking ripping your balls. The thing is about this song though is that I can't hate it anymore because I was watching the Christmas '73 special on Christmas Eve around my mum's and I'm dying to tell her the story about Lenny Peters and the cab driver story and. She just turned around to me and said, oh, this was me and your dad's favourite song. We used to sing this in the pub all the time. And I was like, oh, fuck. Because, you know, I'd never cried about my dad before, you know, and he died five years ago. And we just ended up with our arms around each other and we're singing along and I I just start roaring. And, it, you know, it really was the first time I've cried about my dad's death because at the time I'd started a course of antidepressants and they Mm. just kicked in when he died. So I went fucking do Lale and and my head's focused on sorting my mum out, sorting his grandkids out and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I remember at the funeral, we're in the car behind the earth on the way to the, on the way to the funeral. And before I could stop me saying, I just found myself saying, fucking hell, my dad's been in a fridge for three weeks if it had been a yoghurt, they'd have fucking lobbed him. And, uh, yeah, so it it was just it was just uh, bizarre that this song uh, just brought it all out in me. And so, you know, I've got, I've got to thank uh, Peters and Lee for that. I feel like a right heel now. In, in, in the circumstances, I think you were the bigger man for keeping the racism thing to yourself and biting your tongue. Yeah. I think you did the right yeah, thing there. I did, yeah. But yeah. there's always those songs, no matter how shit that... I mean, fucking hell, we, we put the boots into Lady in Red. The, uh, the last episode, but I mean that that song means some something to someone. Yeah, but you mm. know, fuck them. 
Should have picked a better song with cunts. Yeah. <laughs> so the following week, Welcome Home nudged up one place to number four and then spent two weeks at number two before it knocked next week's number one off the top spot. Fucking hell. That's that's stalking, isn't it? That's bummer dog-like levels of stalking. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You take your time. When, when you're ready, I'll fucking take you off the top of the charts. Yeah. <laughs> it stayed there for one week before being usurped by I'm the Leader of the Gang by Gary Glitter. And it ended up selling 800,000 copies and was the third best-selling single of 1973. Jesus. The follow-up, By Your Side, only got to number 39 in November of this year, but they'd have a number three hit in May of 1974 with Don't Stay Away Too Long. After two more top 20 hits, they split up in 1980, and Diane Lee went on to marry Rick Price, the bassist of Wizard, and played the title role in Cinderella with an S, the adaptation of the pantomime by Jim Cunt Cunt Davidson. Absolutely divine. Well, it says here in my script, Barry White, and I'm going to love you just a little more, baby, at number 23, so I guess that must be right. Do you reckon? Feels so good. You're lying here next to me. Everett, in front of a swirling tinfoil backdrop, sulkily reads from the script again and then sticks it on the wall as he introduces a BBC-made film of I'm Gonna Love You Just A Little Bit More, Baby, by Barry White. Born Barry Carter in Galveston, Texas in 1944, Barry White was moved to south-central Los Angeles as a child and became a badden. At the age of 14, his balls dropped, causing the largest crater to pit the earth since the Tunguska meteor incident in 1908. Two years later, he ended up on lockdown for nicking 30 grand worth of Cadillac tyres. While in prison, however, he became obsessed with It's Now or Never by Elvis and decided there and then to pursue a musical career. After joining the upfronts on his release, he became an A&R man, songwriter, session musician and arranger throughout the 60s and he co-wrote I Feel Love Coming On by Felice Taylor and doing the Banana Split for the Banana Splits. In 1972, he demoed some tracks for an unknown male artist but was advised to record them himself. One of them, this song, was released as his debut single, which got to number three in the American charts, and is up this week from number 30 to number 23. First things first, Kenny's got a right fucking monk on, hasn't he? Yeah, this whole thing where he, he does a northern accent for no apparent reason, and then makes a weak joke about what it says on his script in front of this psychedelic swirling screen. It, it seems quite different from 
uh, most of the other Top of the Pops we've seen, as, as if he, he's existing in this kind of slightly separate pod, a separate world from it all. And what's doubly sad, right, he's about to introduce the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Barry fucking White. <laughs> and there's all this, this drivel. And yeah, you mentioned the point earlier on about yeah. the kind of sheer up their arseness about DJs who imagine that we're actually just sort of sitting through the songs like the Tomorrow's World or something like that eagerly awaiting their little humorous links it's just yeah this song and this film I mean fucking hell where where do we start with this two things we can just fucking rattle on about for ages I don't think I've told my Barry White story before have I no go on Um, my Barry White story doesn't involve actual Barry White, but it involves his music. Um, basically, uh, and this this is a story that, that people are always reminding me of and comes back to haunt me ever since I went public with it. But um, uh, basically, in, in the late 90s, um, I became quite uh, obsessed with Barry White and his music. I, I uh, came to hold a view, which I still hold, that, that you know, he's, he's, he's a genius on, on a par with... Anybody care to mention, like, Isaac Hayes, mm. Curtis Mayfield, in terms of just the way he sculpted soul music, just the arrangements of his music. Mm. And I went through this this phase of just listening to his greatest hits over and over. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of my safe place, that music. It was just yeah. this, this calming thing that I would just always listen to it. And and I was aware that people think he's cheesy and that, you know, people think of it as, you know, um, uh, Abigail's Party kind of seduction yes. music, that, that kind <laughs> yes. of thing. But um, I, I just try to put all of that out of my mind and just enjoy it purely as as music and and forget all all the kind of you know medallion man um lothario uh, you know uh, connotations that the go that go with Barry White's music so this is where i was at at the time now i'd just written my book about the manic street preachers and uh, we had a launch party uh, at, uh, upstairs from a pub in london and when that finished um a bunch of us uh, went on to a nightclub and um during the party, somebody had slipped me an ecstasy pill. Mm. Um, I, I'm not going to name any names, but it, it wouldn't be far from the mark to to say that it was somebody who uh, it, was, it was somebody who'd worked with me at Melody Maker in, in the past. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Uh, and I, I'd ne- I'd never taken ecstasy in my life before, but I th- but I graciously said thank you and put it in my pocket, and we went off to a club. When we got to the club, um, there was. There was this girl there that, that I really fancied and she's sort of a friend of various friends. She was part of my kind of social circle. Um, and I, th- I thought, I, I, I need to say something. I need to go make my move and, no. you know, <laughs> move, move in there. And, uh, I needed a bit of Dutch courage and, and I thought, well, you know, alcohol's not enough. And then I remembered I've got this pill in my pocket. Oh no. And yeah. And I didn't know really what the effects of ecstasy were. I, I just thought, well, what? <laughs> just, you know, give it a go, you know. So I popped the pill. Um, and by the way, all of it, I found out later, you, you know, probably certainly on your first go, probably best having half or a quarter. But yeah, I just, I necked the thing and I, I marched over, said hello and, um, and, and, and we got talking. And it was all going really well. We, we got on well. We, we, we sat down in the corner having a good old chat and, uh, but after about quarter of an hour or so, I, I started feeling really quite unwell. And I just had to, I had to kind of confide to her. I, I said, look, look, um, I've done a really stupid thing here. And I, I. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I, I told her, I said, look, right, I, I'm really sorry, but I, I took this pill and I've never done it before. And suddenly, I, you know, and I was, I was feeling <laughs> I, I dehydrated. Uh, I, you know, she went over and got me some water. Uh, and then I was thinking, oh, I mustn't drink too much of it. Don't want to do a Leah Beck. Yes. So, <laughs> so uh, and then uh, she, she takes me outside for some fresh air, which, you know, uh, and it was, she was great. She snapped into action, did all the right things. Uh, and, you know, we went outside and I, I kind of eventually sort of, uh, I, 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 I came down sufficiently that I, I didn't think I was going to die anymore because, mm. uh, you know, there was that. I, I can vividly remember, and it turns out this is a real, this is a false memory that there were posters of Jill Dando on the, on the wall opposite outside the police station. Um, it turns out Jill Dando actually was still alive at that point, um, right. so it must have been a subsequent visit to that club. But um, anyway, to cut a very long story short, we went back to my place, um, uh, you know, as you do, and uh, um, the first thing I did when we got through the door, and I'm still a bit like you know freaked out from taking the pill. It's like the right, right. I know. God, I put some music on, and I put the Barry White album on. Oh, you know, not 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 to put too fine a point on it. We were still together the next morning, and indeed, we stayed together for several months. Um, you know, oh, uh, good old Barry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and um, nothing was ever said about the Barry White thing for a long time. Um, you know, she she was great actually. You know, right girl, wrong time, and all of that possibly. Mm. But um, <laughs> quite a while later, she she sort of reminisced to me. She's going. Um, do you remember that time you took me back to your place and you put on the Barry White music and you know and she was convinced I'd done it in a kind of sexy way like Oh yeah because hey, it is a statement isn't it when you put shit it like is, that yeah. on It is yeah but and I was mortified <laughs> I was absolutely all this time you've had the thought in your head that I was doing that thing Oh my god shit. and I, yeah I just and I, I, I was so glad that I at least managed to clear it up so that she hasn't spent the subsequent nearly 20 years laughing at me about the time I took her back oh, and played a Barry White record. Oh, because- I can just imagine you throwing yourself about like Bev at the beginning of Abigail's party to it as well, well that, Simon. That's, that, that, that's how I dance anyway, at the best of Offering times. her a nibble. Yeah. So, so to, to this day, even though my love for Barry White is undimmed, I still kind of kind of flinch a little bit when I hear his, his oh. wonderful music. I mean, I must admit that for a very, very long time, I saw Barry White as shaking Isaac. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was because of my age and, you know, the environment <laughs> I grew up. It was, it was that cheesy music. But then, it wasn't until the 90s when Lisa Stansfield did a version of I'm Never Gonna Give You Up. And I was watching it on MTV with my girlfriend at the time. And she said, oh, this is really good. And I said, what, you think this is good? Have you not heard the original? Says, what, this is a cover version? I said, yeah. You not heard the Barry White version of this? She went, no. Had it on a Greatest Hits compilation CD. Whacked it on. And, of course, the first thing that happens is Barry White going, (laughs) ooh. And it's just like, oh, my God, you know what? This is actually quite fucking brilliant. And... (laughs) 
and you know, removed from its seventies environment and placed into the nineties, it's like, oh fucking hell, this stands up really fucking well. Yes, it does. And I love him yeah, now. I love him now. I, I think, I, mean, I think he's absolutely on a par with with Isaac Hayes. I completely agree with Simon on that one, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of like music that kind of like conveys all the sort of nuance and undulations of sex and sexuality. I mean, it's just absolutely perfect. And this is, I've not heard this track in ages, you know, especially at the intro. It's just, it's, it's absolutely mm. one, you know, and you can, sorry kids, but you can keep your kind of turbocharged pneumatic techno. I mean, this is sex music. But the film that goes with it, it's it's very Jan Svankmeyer, isn't it? It's that stop motion Eastern yes. European kind of thing that is exaggerated, I think, by the fact that it's in black and white. I don't know if it would have the same effect if it was in colour. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah, mm. it's a bit Svankmeyer. It's a bit Jean Roland. It's a bit René Magritte. Um, it's a bit German expressionist. It's all that kind of stuff going on there. And I, I, I really got is the that idea that some hairspray ad as well. Oh well, oh yeah. Well, there's that whole thing with the with the uh, the woodland nymph looking woman mm. and, and the Jesus yeah. looking guy, which kind of yeah. is a bit jarring. But yeah, yeah it it's, starts it's, it starts par for the course, doesn't it? With yeah. the, the standard girl walking around the woods or a garden uh, and a bloke walking around with her, but then then it goes off on one. Yeah, you've with, got all that symbolic stuff, haven't you? Bowler hats, yeah. chairs, yeah. cellos. It, it's, essen- it's essentially two clockwork orange goths fucking about in the kitchen with stop motion. Yeah, 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 yeah. And with, I, a, with a cat and loads and of cat. pots and pans and bottles and everything. A couple of art students fucking about with a camera for an afternoon. Mm. Well, I, I really thought someone here is plumping up their showreel a little bit, you know, using the mm. BBC budget. And clearly they didn't give a fuck which song this was going to go with. It has yeah. no relation to the song at all. No, it's like, we're going to make this film and we don't really care what song they, they put it with. I actually played a little game with myself of yeah. uh, thinking, w- if I saw this video on mute, uh, who would I think, you know, the, the, the song was by? And apart from the very 70s looking people at the beginning, I would mm. have said a Bauhaus video or a Cure video from 10 years later. Um, I, I looked up the guy, the guy's called Tom Taylor. That's right, yes. Uh, and I, I looked on IMDb uh, and there's not really anything that, that could be the same guy, but there, there are two um, Tom Taylors who were working at around that time um, one of them made a documentary called Dali in New York. Um, right. And another made um, a, one called Mondo Nude, which is about behind the scenes hmm. at the Nude Miss World competition. So it could right. have been one of those two Tom Taylors. Mm. I don't know. Or maybe he just kind of vanished. I don't know. But clearly he was thinking, ooh, BBC money, carte blanche, mm. let's do something clever here. Yeah. I mean, not notwithstanding the intrinsic merits of the, uh, <laughs> the piece, whatever it was. I mean, yeah, and it could have been Agadoo by Black Lace, you know, it was, it was long too. But, but, or, or jump up and down with, with your knickers in the air or something. <laughs> yeah. There is that slightly unfortunate thing that possibly of the time, whereby, you know, there's an aversion. It's a bit like when you had those Otis Redding covers that featured white people on the cover. And, you know, this is a bit of an entirely, you know, white people or whatever. And, and the black musician is there as a kind of discreet supplier of, like, um, dance floor entertainment or whatever. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that aspect is a little bit unfortunate. It may be that, like, obviously Barry White is not a known, he's not a known icon, he's not a sort of a known celebrity at this point, and they probably had a quick look at one of his press shots and think, Ugh. just perhaps yes. not, not because of his blackness, but because of his kind of sort of walrus-like, you know, whatever, mm. and they thought, oh, best go with this. But, I mean, yeah, this is, uh, this is like the beginning of a, of a big and a beautiful thing in the 70s, isn't it? Absolutely, mm. and um, I think not, not only his, his own work, but, the work he did with uh, uh, Love, Love Unlimited Orchestra and Love Unlimited, the girl group, um, 
just you know just a, a yes. stunning body of work really and i i think um it's a shame that that mm. to this day he's still viewed in some quarters as a bit of a joke figure because i th- i think he deserves a lot better than that so the, the following week i'm going to love you just a little bit more baby dropped two places to number 25 fucking britain <laughs> and it stayed there for two weeks the follow-up never never gonna give you up got to number 14 for three weeks in the spring of 1974 and it go on to have five top 10 hits throughout the mid 70s including a number one with you're the first my last my everything after scraping the bottom end of the top 40 in the mid 80s and mid 90s barry white passed on in 2003 at the age of 58 oh man gone too soon yeah. I'm three years away from that. Have I told you my Barry White story? Oh, go on. I'd gone on a weekend to Amsterdam with a few people from work. And because they'd never been before, and I've been loads of times, you have to do that thing where, okay, I've got to take you to the banana bar, and I've got to take you to the Casa Rosso, which was where they'd do the live sex shows. So I'm sat there watching a couple on a sort of revolving podium having a shag, And this song comes on while they're having it off. And immediately, all the British people, and, you know, that's a stupid thing to say because everyone in there was British. Only British people go to this sort of shit. Everyone behind me going, oh, oh, isn't it a shame? And I turn around and go, what? Not, no, not Barry. And they just went, yeah. And I just went, oh, man, Barry White's died. And right at the end where where the bloke had shot his bolt, he looked up to the sky and pointed up at Barry, which I thought I thought he'd appreciate that. And now, at number seven this week, we have Snoopy versus the Red Baron. After the turn of the century In the clear blue skies over Germany Came a roaring and a thunder Ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty or more. Frank got better down on the floor. Kissed her once and he kissed her twice. Pulled down a knickers and said, "Oh, nice." <laughs> Another hit there from the Scotome Junior School playground. <laughs> Everett. Finally surrounded by the kids and wearing a Bismarck helmet that could have been the same one donned by Steve Priest in the blockbuster performance for the Christmas show, adopts a comedy German accent as he introduces Snoopy versus the Red Baron by the Hot Shots. Formed in 1967, the Cimarrons were the first ever UK reggae band comprising of expatriate Jamaican session musicians who supported a welter of touring reggae singers whenever they were in the UK. 
1973, they were the house band at Trojan Records and recorded this single with producer Clive Crawley on vocals, a cover of the Royal Guardsman single about Baron von Richthofen being killed by a cartoon dog on a flying kennel, which led to them being sued by Charles Schultz and all publishing revenues going to him, which got to number eight over here in March of 1968. For reasons unknown... Possibly due to experienced reggae musicians not wanting to be seen dead performing this song on the telly, it was given to a band called Wild Country, who changed their name for this song to Hot Shots. And it's up this week from number 12 to number 7. Can I just clarify from, from, that, from that, uh, that, that very sort of labyrinthine story there? Yeah. Uh, so the musicians we're actually hearing on, on the record, are yeah. they the, you know, the former Cimarrons or are they this... Other band, the, it's the it's it's the Cimarrons did it. It's them did the music, and the producer sang it. It's it's an Alvin Stardust job, isn't it? Right. So the people actually on top of the pops had nothing to do with the record whatsoever. Apparently so. Wow. There's very little to be to be winkled out uh, on the internet about this band. I'm afraid because it's it's interesting. It's it's unprovable whether um, my reaction to to this clip uh, was you know based just by what they look like but I, mm. I was really surprised to hear that these were sort of accomplished reggae musicians because to me yeah. having watched it that and, and having heard it th- this is the kind of reggae that is so white that it becomes umpa. yes you know yes exactly yes uh, and but by the way the, the older because <laughs> that 10 20 30 40 50 or more yeah I, I remember the chant but it's one of those things i never knew where the chant came from yeah and until hearing this song just now um it's it's baffling to me. S- sometimes the past is in English and we can read it easily. Yeah. Sometimes the past is in cuneiform and there's no ro- <laughs> there's no Rosetta Stone to help no. us with it. And I, you know, I, I I'm looking at this from the distance of uh, what are we forty five years and and honestly I I cannot for the life of me figure out why. Well, first of all, why anybody wanted to do a song about. Uh, cartoon dog defeating the, the Red Baron in the first place, mm. and, and then to do a reggae cover of it about ten years yeah. later or you know uh, seven years later, it's yeah. and it, then it's, have other people well, miming it. Yeah, yeah, just the, the the whole thing is a head fuck, and it's yeah. one of those t- times. It, it might as well be a hundred and forty five years ago. It, it is that that baffling to me. Um, yeah. One thing that I I, I did think was kind of uh, notable about it that they got the word bloody into um, on top yes. of the pops and primetime BBC the bloody yes, red baron of Germany yes and, yes and and just the kind of the the jollity of singing of the horrors of war 80 men died yeah. in this song yes there's a yeah, death, it's ridiculous death isn't it in this song but yeah. but then again it must be okay to sing a song about mass death if it was like 40 50 years ago or something I mean a modern day version of I don't know Peppa Pig versus the IRA pub bombers or something. <laughs> but, the, I mean, this is based in, in, in something... I mean, if you're not... I mean, you are, if you're familiar with the Peanuts cartoons, I mean, the, you know, this isn't this isn't just sort of randomly taking Snoopy no. out and then pitting him against Red Baron. For the ages, there was this running joke about him kind of, you know, like being being this kind of World War I flying yeah. ace yeah, yeah, yeah. going up against Red Baron. So it's very... That's obviously why you have that. Um... But I, I heard this a lot at the time, and I would have probably sung along, and I'd probably sort of, um, of, of, of like, you know, improvise X-rated lyrics to it as well, you know, with my school chums and what have you. It never occurred to me at the time, or subsequently, that there's this kind of Trojan element to it. Yeah. I kind of thought of it as kind of sort of bumptious Bavarian brass, yeah. really. 
And it's only like listening to it after, after many years that I realise, yes, it's, it's, it's a sort of, you know, classic slab of like, you know, Trojan dance or reggae as well, you know. Yeah. Um, that's a bit, you know, yeah, it is, it is quite surreal, really. It's quite unfathomable, really. As Simon says, you know, why all of these particular kind of forces, why it went through all of these kind of permutations, and then all for it to end up in the kind of vast coffers of Charles Schultz as well. Yes. Which, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's what Trojan were doing at the time. You know, they were taking a lot of Jamaican records and then adding strings to them and sweetening them up. Um, and so they, they, they obviously must have thought, well, fucking hell, we can do this ourselves, can't we? Yeah. And you know, this is the era of Johnny Reggae and you know, Which I love, all those by the other way. things. Yeah. It's not as weird as you think. I mean, yeah. reggae was a definite thing yeah, yeah. by the early 70s and a definite thing like by white people as well. If you were in the know, if you were in the know, you knew about reggae. But I mean, it's a bit like homosexuality not being invented until 1975. You know, yeah. I, mean, I wasn't aware that reggae was invented until 1976 by Bob Marley. Yeah. So Paul Nicholas. Paul Nicholas. Come on, time, get it right. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Paul Nicholas, obviously, yeah, got in there first. The two things that stand out from this performance are, you know, we get, we, there's a load of the, the kids in the background dancing, and it is proper fucking Ange dancing, isn't it? But they're loving it. Mm. They're going nuts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. D- sort of jumping from side to side kind of thing. Yeah. It's got a proper school disco vibe to it, mm-hmm. hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they, they probably do a, a dance, because probably Barry White, you can't really kind of, you know, they've had Welcome Home before that. Yeah. And yeah, and they haven't really had a cut chance for a kind of yeah, a good sort of chum until a bit until of a now, jig. Really. Hmm. And and of course the other thing about the band who just look a just look a right load of Herberts, they always look to me like the bloke in the Cossack advert who's um, who's where a bus has gone by and his hair's all over the shop <laughs> because he didn't use the product. <laughs> and the one thing I did notice was quite possibly the first sighting on Top of the Pops and British television of really bad dad flares. Oh. You know, just the really shapeless, fucking awful ones that, you you know, you'd see Lee Trevino in them in the British Open. (laughs) And particularly you'd see Arthur Mullard wearing them in the opening credits of Yus, My Dear. It's like, oh, these are the fashion, oh, they're okay, I'll just sling them on. I mean, flares in the past, they tapered in at the top and accentuated the bottom of the leg. But these ones, they're, yeah. just, they're just fucking awful. These are the, these are the ones yeah. that gave Flair such a, a bad name, I think. Yeah. Is this the top yeah. of the Pops Orchestra, by the way? I, I thought it was at the yeah. beginning, but then I realised that they were actually playing in time. Right. So yeah. it couldn't have been, because they, oh man, they made some right balls-ups with reggae. There's, oh. I think I think I, I advise the Pop Crazy Youngsters to go on YouTube and, and check out their version of Sideshow by Barry Biggs. Oh, it's yes. fucking awful. It's Moral like Terry, and the, do you remember Terry and the Idiots yeah. on uh, the punk film DOA? And they had to go playing reggae, and they just gave up halfway through. It's just like that. So the following week, Snoopy versus the Red Baron nipped up one place to number six, stayed there for another week, and eventually got as high as number four. Hot Shots immediately sank without trace, but later on that year, the Cimarrons were featured on the Old Grey Whistle Test as the backing band for the Edinburgh Festival Reggae Extravaganza, which was presented by Judge Dredd. Have you ever seen that? It's amazing. No. All no. the fucking greats, man, on there. They come on, they do a song, and they fuck off again. Cool. And the Royal Guardsman, who's to blame for all this, 
went on to record Snoopy's Christmas in 1967, Snoopy for President in 1968, and reformed in 2006 to record Snoopy versus Osama. We have prancing about on their pins or their plates, pans people to Paul Simon's divine Take Me to the Mardi Gras. As the kids look on with awe at Everett, he announces the official opening of Dad Time as he introduces Pan's people dancing to Take Me to the Mardi Gras by Paul Simon. Born in Newark, New Jersey in 1941, Paul Simon met Art Garfunkel at the age of 11 and formed the duo Tom and Jerry, who had a number 49 hit in America with Hey School Girl in 1957. In 1963, the duo changed their name to Kane and Gar and went a bit folky and were immediately picked up by Columbia Records when they were spotted performing at a Greenwich Village cafe. In 1964, and by now using their proper names, they released the LP Wednesday Morning 3am, which only sold 3,000 copies, leading Simon to piss off to Britain where he made a living as a solo performer and had one of his songs picked up by Val Dunican. While he was out there, one of the tracks on the LP, The Sound of Silence, was picked up on by American radio stations and he returned home to reunite with Garfunkel. They went on to have seven chart singles in the UK, including Bridge Over Troubled Water, which got to number one for three weeks in the spring of 1970, but they split up in 1971. Simon immediately relaunched his solo career with his debut single, Mother and Child Reunion, getting to number five in the UK. This is the follow-up to Me and Julio down by the schoolyard, which got to number 15 in May of 1972. It's up this week from number 36 to number 24, and it's being emoted to by Pan's people. So... Simon, is this bringing back lovely memories of your holiday? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean... This is the weird thing, because we've got Pan's people there wearing flamenco skirts. Is that because Mardi Gras is like a bit foreign, but it's the wrong kind of foreign? Or are they meant to be can-can skirts, because the words Mardi Mm. Gras themselves are French? But um, and anyway, yeah, yeah, it's it's a love letter to New Orleans from Paul Simon. Um, It's a bit of a slight song, isn't it, really? Um, But yeah, yeah, it's it's got uh, lines like... You can mingle in the street, you can jingle to the beat of Jelly Roll. Now, obviously, that's a tribute to uh, Jelly Roll Morton, uh, the, yeah. the New Orleans jazz pianist, um, so named because he, he started out working in a brothel. And um, Jelly mm. Roll was a crude term for a lady's fanny. There's no getting around it. So, Lovely. yeah, yeah. So that's what you're jingling to the beat of there, uh, really. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, it's... I mean, it's it's a fantastic city, but of of all the all the kind of songs to pay tribute to it, it it he doesn't really capture the sort of vibrant, wild spirit of of uh, of, of Nola for me. 
Yeah, Jambalaya by the Comatis is a bit more raucous than this, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and I look... I, uh, yeah, you, you know all about my obsession with Jambalaya by the Carpenters, but that's yeah, well, we, not we even... Got, now. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because, yeah, uh, I, I I sort of gave myself a bit of a crash course in uh, New Orleans music before going on holiday there, Um and also, I wondered what what kind of um, food I I could be uh, looking forward to hearing when I got uh, sorry eating when when I got there, and uh, um, obviously one of the things that came up is is jambalaya, and that got that song by the Carpenters stuck in my head, which I <laughs> I, I had uh, when when I was a child. Um, it was on on the B side of some you know Carpenters EP, and I was at that age where you've only got a few records, and even if you don't particularly yeah. like them, you play them all anyway. And I exactly. and I, I I hated the kind of sort of cringy jollity of 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 the carpenter's version of Hank Williams Jambalaya um and and yet uh, I I played it kind of to make myself laugh before the holiday and I actually found myself really getting into it and it kind of stuck in my head and uh, I started feeling my elbows moving up and down in in a jaunty way and um I I, I went from kind of taking the piss out of Jambalaya by the carpenters to actually loving it and um, when I got there, we, we went to see various of these really cool um, sort of uh, uh, trad jazz bands who play on street corners and stuff like that. Um, and uh, one of them actually played Jambalaya and I was absolutely in heaven. And then, then we went to uh, this, um, uh, it was the French Quarter Festival and there was a, a, a Zydeco band uh uh, who were led by the, the son of the legendary Rockin' Dopsy, uh, who did a, um, an accordion version of Jambalaya. So I heard it twice in the same holiday. And both of those, um, as cheesy as they may be, uh, captured the, the spirit of, you know, uh, New Orleans and, and Louisiana far better than um, Paul Simon, oh. I'm afraid to say. And similarly, Pan's people, they they have a go at recreating New Orleans, but it's it's not really come off, has it? I mean, the one thing we got, we got, we, we got to put up front right now. This is a, this is one of the few times that we see pans people or a dance troupe in stockings and suspenders, which would be, you know, total dadisfaction. <laughs> uh, but but th- it manages to 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 have all that and still not be sexy. Yeah, they're not allowed to be sexy. They've got to. They can't bump and grind. You know, it's weird. They can sort of do all kinds of. You know, they can have sexist costumes. They can be a kind of sexist option, but they can't be. They can be sexist, but they can't be sexy. I think it's the um, you know the distinction, and so you look. You know, there's, there's a. I mean, this is what actually with Kenny Everett, whatever, and hot gossip came along. I mean, you know, there, there was there was no old about you know Bart there, and that and it really kind of showed up, exposed that aspect of Pan's people. They just had to make these kind of sort of slightly gymnastic mm. movements, but it's all kind of slightly prim, and it sort of falls short of sexy. Yeah, I agree that there are some bits in this performance where the camera zooms in on their faces, and they do these weird kind of they they mm. sort of tap the ends of their noses with their fingers and. And do do some weird kind of gestures, and mm. it's all a bit like 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 play away, you know, like like when mm. the song and dance routines on play yeah. away. It's it's absolutely asexual. Yeah, mm. it doesn't help that the song's a load of arse, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I think Paul Simon, he's going through it was, it was quite a long phase really in his career where he is desperate to achieve some sort of blackness by osmosis, and you've got the Reverend Claude Jeter on here, you know, you've got me and Julio down by the schoolyard. I think he's just become in the 70s, and then obviously into the 80s, with Graceland and things like that, he seems to become obsessed with kind of ethnicity and the ethnicities that he doesn't himself possess, but in sort of, mm. quite, um, deeply wishes that he had, and kind of makes a bit of an <laughs> embarrassment of himself, really. You know, obviously, I mean, people are very happy to sort of play along with him, you know, he's a huge star, but it's almost like for years, you know, those later years, he was looking at Art Garfunkel and saying, why aren't you black and a foot shorter? 
um, <laughs> and um, yeah, and you know, they get things like this really. But in a sense, you know, you, you can't possibly achieve that. And all he really emphasises in forms like this is is mm. is how unblack he is. So the following week, take me to the Mardi Gras, jump seven places to number 17 and would eventually get to number seven. The follow-up, Loves Me Like a Rock, would only get to number 39 and he'd have to wait 13 years before he returned to the top 10 with You Can Call Me Owl, which got to number four in October of 1986. Did that song make your life a misery, by the way? The bane of my fucking life when I was 18. (laughs) Fucking little cunt. (laughs) Ooh, the tension's mounting here at Studio 6 at Telecentre. Ooh, it gets you right. All over, actually. <laughs> As we introduce to you, Don, Dave, Jimmy and Nod with their new record, Slay! time and Everett works himself up to a suitable pitch for the next song Squeeze Me, Please Me by Slade. We've already discussed Slade in every other fucking episode of Chart Music, so we'll just say that this is the follow-up to Come On, Feel The Noise, which got to number one for four weeks in March of this year and was the first single to go straight in at number one since Get Back by The Beatles in 1969. It was recorded during their tour of America and released the day before this very episode came out. The band are in the studio to perform the song, but for some bizarre reason, the performance on the recording we've got has been wiped after one second. I think we see just a quick flash of uh, of Dave Hill's outfit. And then it immediately cuts into the recording of the audience dancing to this song a couple of weeks later in a show presented by Noel Edmonds. I do not no why mm. don't even fucking ask mm. me yes uh, and i well i i think it's nice that rather than slay themselves or or pans people or indeed an arty film we we've got the audience having a party it's it's like a very white anglo-saxon version of soul train you know the american yes. show um and just uh, just looking at the way they look and the way they're moving um i thought un- unusually for top of the pops people aren't pulling in a different direction on the timeline they aren't dragging their heels from the past, nor are they eager to dive into the future. They're loving Mm. being in the 70s. They're loving Mm. being in what they think will be an eternal 1973. Um, Except for a a very bored-looking pair of women near the end who look like air hostesses at the end of a long shift. Um, Yes. But, yeah, um, I I, I guess you you notice the the two women in Super Noel T-shirts. Yes. This this cartoon Noel Edmonds as a superhero T-shirt that... um, had this actually been in the episode that Kenny Everett presented, uh, would have pissed him off, I'm sure. It would have pissed Tony Blackburn oh. off a whole lot more. Um, so, yeah, uh, definitely. And, and, and Noel Edmonds himself is wearing the, yeah, the super old T-shirt we, we, as well, of course. We see him in the middle of the throng having a dance. And what would his, what would his special power oh, be? Jesus. Answers on an email. I mean, <laughs> but just the thing with, with him uh, um, having the T-shirt on himself and, and some of the 
uh, the girls also wearing Noel Edmonds t-shirts. Did he put them up to it? Did he go into his local pronto print or the mm. 70s equivalent and 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 pay to have yeah. t-shirts made with a cartoon of himself as a superhero and give them out? And I hope the bloke said, "I thought he was gay." <laughs> Exactly. I think Noel's superpower would be the ability to swap things. You know, or I'm being attacked by a load of people and I will swap this pen in my hand for a big fucking sword. Or a Nazi flag. Yes, yes. Yeah, or I'm in a cage, I'm going to swap it for a nice helicopter, which I can shoot elephants from. (laughs) Yeah. It's got legs, that. Super Noel. But this song, um, it's pretty much the lost Slade number one, isn't it? I think at this stage, it's it's almost like peak Slade, really. It's it's um, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously they had Merry Christmas, everybody, and that. But um, yeah, it, it's kind of generic. Really. I think people were just in the habit of like just going out and buying Slade records, but they could have put out "Get Down and Get With It" probably, and it would still have uh, you know ascended high. It's just mm. it's just sort of generic, really. I mean, they're probably a band that's just at the point of running out of ideas, really. You know, despite having their kind of glorious Christmas hurrah. I mean, it's not long after this you get into the kind of My Friend Stan era and they kind of go all downbeat yeah. again and don't really quite do yeah. as well and Slade and Flay and everything like that and they never really recover after that. Um, so, yeah, but it is very odd that it... I, I think, yeah, they, it's just a bit sort of generic, really. It hasn't really caught the future's imagination the way that, like, Merry Christmas and Come On, Feel the Noise did and even one mm. or two others. You know, it's just... You know, it's just squeeze me. Uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's very much their um, role with it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> this is a this is you know here's a song. It sounds like us. Mm, exactly. Buy it. Yeah. But people and, and obviously that this clip is from you know a couple of weeks after it's come out and it's a huge hit by the time they're dancing to it. Yeah. Just seeing the joy on people's faces, they absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, and and it makes me think that Slade were. More than anyone else, maybe even more than ABBA, Slade were the band of the seventies, certainly of the British seventies. Yeah, and and by by this point in the game, they're confident enough to be self-referential. There's a line that goes, yeah. "Take me back home, you got it all wrong," which is name checking a previous number one. Yeah, I mean, I would have absolutely loved this at the time. Um, and and again, you know, you talk about that, and it's like. This top of the pops isn't, you know, like wall to wall sort of danceable, is it? You know, you get these horrible kind of little MR interludes and things. So even within that thirty minutes that you're allowed each week, you only actually get about ten or fifteen that you can really kind of get off on and get your rocks off on. And this would have definitely been part of it. I would have absolutely loved this. I just think from the future point of view, you know, where we look back and you know, it's probably just been kind of overlooked by the future really. But at the time, yeah, Simon says it would have um um yeah, it was it was absolutely sort of sheer essence of 1973, along with the Lightly Lads and Red Rum. Yes. And Sunderland. <laughs> the other thing to bring up is we see a lot more blokes than uh, than before, don't we? I mean, right at the beginning, there's some of them that just look like they've wandered in from the canteen. Oh, there's one bloke, he looks like... He looks Cro-Magnon. He looks like um, yes. he looks like the actor. He looks like uh, what's the guy's name who, who played uh, Jaws in the James Bond films? Yeah, he's got, oh, him. Yes. Yeah, he's got that kind of look about him. Bloody hell! Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's the other one with uh, with a bass and haircut and some glasses, and he <clears throat> he's got a Slade badge on because they were lobbing the badges out, and then massive seventies badges as well, aren't they? Which I love. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he's 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 put put one in his tie. And it, it it looks like a lanyard. And uh, of course, there's there's one lad who's in 
not only in a star jumper, but he's in a star tank top, which is absolute peak 1973. Mm, mm, yes, it is. Mm. And that was a very Northern Soul thing, of course. That was standard issue, yeah. So the following week, Squeeze Me, Please Me sold 300,000 copies in its first week, went straight in at number one and stayed there for three weeks before being usurped by Welcome Home by Peters and Lee. A week later... Slade played a gig at Earl's Court, which was seen as the pinnacle of their career. But three days after that, Don Powell was involved in a car crash, which killed his fiancée and left him in a coma. Depending on who you believe, Slade offered to perform the song on Top of the Pops as a trio, but the BBC refused, or Slade refused to perform the song without him. And as this transmission was immediately wiped by the BBC, along with the other ones... This song was danced to by Pan's people in the audience, meaning that there is no surviving footage of the band performing this song on top of the pops. And I think that's why it's a forgotten mm. number one, simply because it's not appeared in those endless 70s clip yeah. shows. Yeah. The follow-up, My Friend Stan, got to number two in October of this year, held off the top spot by Eye Level by the Simon Park Orchestra, but they already had Merry Christmas Everybody in their pocket, which would see them closing out 1973 with their sixth and final number one. Wasn't that wonderful? And now, ladies and gentlemen, exclusive to Southern Pops, we have a really fantastically effective piece of film. It's off the front of Live and Let Die, only they've taken the titles off, and here's Paulie to sing behind it. You used to say Still in the crowd and visibly cheered up by now, introduces Live and Let Die by Wings. Formed in 1971 by Paul McCartney after two solo LPs, Wings had had four chart hits, three of which made the top ten in 1972 and early 73. When John Barry announced that he was unavailable to score the next James Bond film, Roger Moore's first, they approached Paul McCartney to write the theme tune. And seeing as they couldn't afford to pay him to score the entire film, they brought in George Martin, making it the first collaboration between him and a Beatle since that band split up. The song, the follow-up to My Love, which got to number nine in the UK of April of this year and is the current number one in America, was supposed to be performed by the female singer BJ Arnu, who was playing the role of a cabaret singer in the film, and Broccoli assumed that the finished tape of the song was merely a demo, but McCartney insisted that the song couldn't be used without him and wings on it. It's moved up this week from number 15 to number 14, and as Everett has pointed out, it's accompanied by the opening sequence from the film, which has its world premiere next week, with the credits removed. Live and Let Die, is this the, the best James Bond theme tune ever? Yeah, I think it is the most exciting, yeah. Um, yes. It's it's danger music, isn't it? It's so exciting. Yeah, it's all going on there. Yes. I think it might be the most exciting thing that Paul McCartney's been involved in, but, you know, I'm not... Uh, 
huge Beatles fan. Mm. It, it, it certainly was post Beatles, and I think it's interesting yeah. that George Martin is back in there with him, and he you know, enables him to sort of really kind of maximise his musical visions, you know, and throw in everything but the kitchen sink and the full brass section, everything like that. I mean, it does sort of meld, you know, Paul McCartney's obviously essential yeah. ability as a songwriter and craftsman, you know, with, you know, the kind of facilities that are like something like a bomb film can put your way, you know, in just in terms of like, you know, the full orchestra, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think prior to that, he had been getting a little bit kind of sort of rustic and sort of small scale and everything like that, and you know, which is fine. But this is almost like a kind of getting back to a sort of, a sort of Sergeant Pepper sort of volume and density, really, you know, like really pulling out all the yeah. stock. Production values, yeah. Production yeah. Values. And I think it is, yeah, it is genuine. Song. It's by far and away the best thing about Bim and Let Die as a film, which is a, Pretty awful Bond film. It's it's just no, you know, no. racist oh, to the core. Yes. It's it's terrible. Um, but this this is you know, but this 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 is excellent. I mean, this is you know, it really is. And it's all the Beatles kind of peter out about this time. Really, about seventy three, they all all of them simultaneously. You know, they they're yeah. commercially and creatively or whatever. By about seventy four, seventy five, they're all. I mean, they're still obviously sort of original. They're still kind of trying to do stuff, but. 73 is the last year in which you can claim that, you know, that any of them are doing anything really, really good, uh, I reckon. I mean, uh, George Harrison's in the charts at the minute with um, yeah. Give Me Love, yeah. whatever it's called, Peace on Earth. And John Lennon, obviously, is still just about around. But they all kind of petered out at about the same time. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like um, a Paul McCartney's uh, anti, anti-60s anti song. It's like his version of God, isn't it? Where mm. Lennon says, I don't believe in this, I don't believe in the Beatles and all this kind of stuff. Um, Paul McCartney's saying, yeah, you used to be a hippie, but now you're, you're, you're going around killing folk. Yes. <laughs> and shagging Jane Seymour. <laughs> oh, do you know who was supposed to be in that role? Oh. The original person? Who? Diana Ross. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. I can't imagine Diana Ross and Roger Moore. Can you? I think from now on, that's all I can imagine. I, I've I've yes. I've got to disagree <laughs> strongly with David about the film *Living Let Die*. Uh, it was the first mm. film I ever saw in the cinema uh, on on a oh, on a go. rainy family holiday in Minehead. Um, my 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 granddad <laughs> took me. Um, the um, the second film I saw in the cinema was *Mary Poppins* on the same holiday, but we we both enjoyed *Living Let Die* a whole lot more. I mean. Roger Roger Moore <laughs> Roger Moore jumping a speedboat from one lake into another like it's a motorbike and running across the mm. heads of alligators like they're stepping stones. What's not to like yeah. about that? All of that's good, but you know, there are exciting sequences in Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffiths as well. It's, it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's more a matter of principle, really. It's just, a, you know, it is a sort of really awfully racist film. But um, but no, no, that's not to deny that there are some pretty exciting sequences. I agree. And at the time, you know, when I wasn't perhaps as woke, whatever the word is, then I would just certainly have, um, yeah, very enjoyed that. You did not say woke. You did say sake. woke. Um, no, I know. I did with heavy inverted commas, don't worry. And, um, um, and I even enjoyed C.W. Pepper, you know, the sudden sort of, um, um, deep yeah. sudden, uh, white sort of trash sort of sergeant and everything like that, where they revived again in, uh, Man with the Golden Gun. I mean, I, I did rewatch this film recently, uh, um, uh, be- because I was going on holiday to, to New Orleans, and uh, oh man, your I- anticipations were rampant. I know, to man. Guys, um, and I, I, I can't really argue with uh, David's assessment of the racial politics of the film in in hindsight. Uh, and and um, 
but I, I, I do nevertheless love the, um, the the New Orleans sequences in that, and the the jazz band who are marching down the street in the funeral scene where mm. someone gets stabbed. That's a genuine. That, that's the Olympia brass band, and they're they're fantastic. Uh, yeah. They they kind of spawned lots of the other the bands that still exist to, to this day. But I, I was very careful when I saw these bands in real life not to ask anyone whose funeral it was for because you know yes. it's, it's yours. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the the thing nowadays, of course, with with uh, um, a, a Bond theme, would the standard practice on top of the pops or for the video would be to have clips of the film edited yeah. together with with footage of the band, perhaps to make it look as if the band are in the film, you know, a la Duran Duran, View to a Kill. Um, so in, instead, here, as you say, we we get the opening title sequence without the words on. So um, this is. One, as you would say, for the dads. This is a bit of dadisfaction, I think, isn't it? So we have a black lady in African-style tribal costume standing in front of a in uh, flames and stuff, and her head explodes and then becomes a skull. And and then there's a silhouette of another lady doing a sexy dance in front of some fireworks, which and that that's obviously a recurring Bond trope. But because the because the context of Top of the Pops. It's so profoundly British that when I was watching it in this context, I was just thinking of Tales of the Unexpected. You know, yes, ding, exactly. ding, yes. ding, 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 yes. ding, ding, ding. Um, by the way, if if you watch these opening credits with the words on, um, it says Assistant Director Derek Cracknell. Now, Derek Cracknell is the father of Sarah Cracknell of Saint Etienne, who was um, often hanging around on set as a small child when Bond films were being made, probably including this one. So, a bit of pop trivia for you there. Good lord. Good Lord. And, and the, the one thing that caught my attention was, yeah, it, it would have been massively impressive in 1973 to watch Top of the Pops and see these kind of visuals yeah. um, that, that you'd expect, you know, 10 years later. Um, you know, unfortunately, it was in black and white for most people. And I, I actually had to check the, 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 the actual uh, opening credits of the film because there's a bit where there's someone's some nudie woman's laying on a front and these praying hands come in and cover her ass, mm. And I just thought, oh, yeah, I bet the BBC did that. But no, 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 no. That's in the film as well. Yeah. Mm. Even in 1973, in a cinema, you couldn't see a, a bare ass unless you went to an ex. <laughs> That's true. Different <laughs> times. Are we going to talk about the famous grammatical howler? Well, I don't think it is, actually. In, in this, No, it's in, in this ever-changing world in which we are living... ING, not yeah. in which we live in, in which we are living. I think that, in fairness. Which is fine. I think it's I fine. probably was one of the people that put it about that he'd said in which we live in, and it's in which we're living. Yeah, although someone did ask McCartney about this in an interview, and he said he doesn't even know anymore. No. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think benefit of the doubt there. Yeah. Yeah. So the following week, Live and Let Die jumped five places to number nine, its highest position. The follow-up, Helen Wheels, got to number 12 in December of this year, which we covered in chart music number three. Live and Let Die remains the most watched film in British television history when 23.5 million people watched its first broadcast on ITV in January of 1980. And that was the actual front of the film without the words on. And now this wonderful gentleman called Dave is going to sing his latest record, Born to Be With You. Fab sound. Off you go, Dave. (laughs) 
up on the stage invades the personal space of the next act, Dave Edmonds, who's about to perform Born to Be With You. Born in Cardiff in 1944, Dave Edmonds formed his first band with his brother at the age of 10 before the two of them joined the Heartbeats in 1957. In 1961, he formed the Raiders, a rockabilly trio which never broke out of the South Wales area before moving to London and joining the Image, but he soon left the group and formed the band Human Beans, which mutated into Love Sculpture. Their first single flopped, but the second, a cover of the classical tune Sabre Dance, got to number five in December of 1968. After Love Sculpture split up in 1970, Edmonds went solo, and when he was producing the first LP by Shaking Stevens and the Sunset, he liked their cover of the 1955 Smiley Lewis song I Hear You Knockin' so much that he nicked it for himself and landed the 1970 Christmas number one with it. This single, a cover of the Cordette song which got to number six in September of 1956, is the follow-up to his cover of Baby I Love You, which got to number eight in March of this year, and it's up this week from number 28 to number 29. Not too sure about that introduction by Everett there. Yeah, Mm, yeah, I don't think he's entirely comfortable with it. He said, why am I being subjected to this and not the other geezers? You know, why isn't the bloke yeah. from Marmalade getting this? Is it because he looks too hard, you know, he might nut you or something? <laughs> We're all au fait at the time with the, with the concept of miming, um, and and that's all right. But when someone's actually talking in real time and then it, the song comes in and poor old Dave's got to start miming, it's, it kind of it loses the mystery somewhat, doesn't it? He's got, and also, it doesn't, it doesn't help that the, the song's pitched too high for him. Yeah, I noticed this. He's singing way above his range, isn't he? And um, yeah. and I, I wondered, did he get fucked over by the Musicians' Union here? You know, was it the BBC Orchestra pitching it too high for him? So I, I played the Top of the Pops performance and I played the, the recorded version back and forth, back and forth. And as far as I can tell, it's exactly the same. So It is, it, isn't it? Yeah, it is that, exactly that, the same. So that is the record. Uh, and... There is that thing when when people sing above their range and they're sort of straining to reach the note that it can be a really nice effect. It can have this kind of yearning quality, and 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 the listener, you know, can can really really enjoy that. And I guess people must have done because it got to what, number five in the charts or something. Yeah. Um. So it, it worked for him, but yeah, I, I just watching him, uh, watching his lips move, and it just looked, oh my god, man, you know, just, yeah, just you know, half an octave lower, you'd be fine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I mean, in the song, I mean, the actual single version, it's you know, he's got this kind of wall of sound thing going on. Yeah, it's a spectacular, and, and it kind of works. But up against this version here, he sounds like a bloke who's had a go on the karaoke, and he, he realizes from the first line that he's it's it's out of his range, and yeah. he's got to fucking got like, it out. It's like that partridge thing. Why do birds? You know, it's mm. like that when he realizes he's got it wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's got he's got very. Yeah. He's got very wiggy hair, hasn't he, Dave Edmonds? Oh, I was going to say, Dave Edmonds at this point, he looks very much like Nigel Tuffnell, actually, in, in this whole yes. clip, definitely. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Extremely so. Um, but it's odd with Dave Edmonds, because like, it starts at 1970, I hear you knocking, that's his kind of big introduction. Mm. And then there's all this weird stuff that I was barely aware of. And then, of course, by the late 70s, he's ensconced with all the geezers in rock pile. Yeah. Nick Lowe and people like that, touring Finland and generating... Anecdotes for Alan Jones. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it becomes the pop rock thing. But it's strange that you had this kind of sort of 
I Hear You Knocking, which seemed like a kind of classic 1971 hit. And then, yeah. then this kind of thing, which I completely, completely passed you by. I have no memory of this at all. And, you know, probably a couple of other things. But, um, you know, just waiting to sort of for pub rock to happen and to join Rock Pile. Thing is, he's a classicist, isn't he? He's, he's at his best when he's covering something from, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier. Um, or indeed, in, in the case of Girls Talk, you know, and, you know, something somebody else has written, Elvis Costello in that case. Um, but... You know, I I think he's a sort of likable figure in in, in oh, rock. Definitely, he's not yeah. he's not an innovator or anything, but I I do like Girls Talk and I do like I hear you knocking and he did a version mm. of Singing the Blues which I liked as well. Um, mm. it, it, he's maybe I'm a little bit biased because he's a little bit of a local hero where where I come yeah. from. Uh, I think I think he still lives in Dinas Powys, which is the posh village yeah. between um, Barry and Cardiff. Um, my dad knew him, in fact, and uh, we we've we've still got. Um, a Welsh Music Award that my dad collected on his behalf once. So if if you're listening, Dave, and you ever want it back, uh, contact me via Chart Music. Um, did did yeah. he bother to give it to him, or was no, it no, just no. left? Um, no, my dad hung on to it and then never never gave it. Oh, to, I see. To David. Victim, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, <laughs> it, it's still in the family if if Dave ever wants it. I'm sure he's got other things to be worrying about. So the following week, Born to Be With You jumped eight places to number eleven and would go as high as number five. But it would be eight more singles and four years before he returned to the charts with I Knew the Bride, which got to number 26 in July of 1977. Serious time from 10cc, Robert Bullets. Take it away, fellas. I went to a party at the local county jail. All the cops were dancing and the men began to wail. We've already discussed 10cc and this song in chart music number 17. So we'll remind you that this is the follow-up to Johnny Don't Do It, their second single which failed to make the charts in December of 1972. It's had restricted airplay on Radio 1 due to the song title and the current situation in Northern Ireland, i.e. our army were using a shitload of them at the time, but after a five-week slog up the charts, it still managed to jump one place to number one, knocking Can the Can by Susie Quattro off the top spot. Me and David have had a go at this in a previous chart music. So, Simon, you, uh, you're you very fond of 10cc, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I love few things more than clever pop, but I hate few things more than pop that's pleased with itself for being clever. Mm. And it's such a fine line. Um, we, we talked about Life's a Minestrone on another yeah. chart music, and I hated that for being the wrong side of that line. But... I, yeah. I love Rubber Bullets, which gets it exactly yeah, right. Because yeah. it works as a storming pop song. It works on that level. Uh, mm. But, yeah, it's it's re- it's got some incredible lines in it. You know, that bit about down at Precinct 49 having a tear gas of a time. And, um, mm. and, and uh, Kevin Godley in a deep voice going, I love to hear those convicts squeal. It's a shame those slugs ain't real. Um, yeah. Yeah, and... and uh, it's it's weird that this this idea got around that it's about Northern Ireland. Um, uh, mm. I mean, Eric Stewart says it wasn't, and it's about prison riots in America, mind you. He, yeah, well, yeah, it's just an updated J Lo's well, yeah. rock, isn't I it? I mean, 
Eric Stewart didn't write it. The other three did. But yeah, if, if you listen to the lyrics, it's blatantly all about Prison Riot. But I guess just the whole subject of Rubber Bullets was very, very touchy at the time for, for you know, the British establishment. But um, uh, yeah, I, I, for, for me, it's it's 10cc at, at their very best, uh, you know, being in, being intelligent, slightly subversive, but also an absolutely brilliant pop group. All at the yeah, I'd agree with all of that, definitely. And I mean, it's interesting that yeah, it's, it's definitely about radicalised. It's definitely, I mean, Jailhouse Rock is exactly right, because 1973 is just the point at which pop music is beginning to kind of become conscious of its legacy and its history, and there's a whole, and also nostalgic as well for its early days. And there's, there's loads of sort of rock and roll revivalism, you know, it's just beginning to start up this year. And this is kind of, like, it's got elements of that, really, you know, it's got a slightly kind of doo-woppy element. It's definitely... Uh, there's definitely a real sort of postmodern throwback feel to this particular track as well. But of course, that, that is, it's weird. It's also got that slightly segmented feel, you know, that reminds, pre reminds, as it were, of Bohemian Rhapsody or whatever, you know, in the middle, you know, going through phases and what have you. Um, but um, yeah, it was ace. And of course, you know, you weren't at school in the seventies if you didn't change the words to Rubber Johnny. Of course, <laughs> of course. I don't think, do you think anybody would even answer if you weren't announced for Rubber Johnny? Now, do you think anybody would understand? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's answer? the thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's probably gone the same yeah. way as, as it's she. It's gone the way of having it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Having it off and getting your leg over as rubber jelly, yeah. isn't it? I don't think anyone knows what you mean anymore. Yeah, I mean, Simon, what you said earlier, I, I, I totally agree with. I mean, it is a clever song, but in this case, the cleverness reveals itself later yeah. on. You're hit yeah. by the fact that it's a fucking tune first. Yes. And then you listen to it again and go, oh, see what they did there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, a completely worthy number one. Wonderful stuff. And yeah. some serious competition knocking around at the time as well. It was pretty yeah. it was pretty decent for a, a relatively new band to, to grab themselves a number one in this era. Yeah. So the following week, Rubber Bullets dropped down one place in the chart, knocked off by Squeeze Me, Please Me. The follow-up, the Dean and I, got to number 10 in September of this year, and they go on to have two more number ones throughout the 70s. What you sound Honokuchi Luchi Boogie Woogie by Mop the Hoople at 22. I'm back off to the mountains. Tra! chart music number three so we'll just say that this is the follow-up to all the young dudes which got to number three in september of 1972 it features andy mckay of roxy music on saxophone and it's up this week from number 38 to number 22 i mean i'm i'm, I'm a lot fonder of mot the hoople than their actual songs probably deserve and, and I, I think a lot of people are like that about them because mm. they're sort of sort of feel-good story of a hard-working but underachieving band from Hereford who eventually made it big with a bit of help from uh, their mate Bowie uh, adopting them as his pet band. I mean, obviously, All the Young Dudes is phenomenal, just one of the greatest records ever yeah. made. Um, I've got a real soft spot for Roll Away the Stone yeah. as well. La- ladies! Um, uh, Honolucci Boogie, not so much. I mean, what is a Honolucci anyway? I uh, don't know. I didn't, no, I didn't bother no. to look. 
<laughs> I, I googled it, and all that comes up is "what the hoople." So it's just some stupid word they've made up, right? Um, and I, I, I think could mean funny. Could be another one could, of them. Yeah, just like Jelly Roll. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons everyone feels very fondly towards Mark the Hoople, I think, is Ian Hunter's book, um, yes. Diary of a Rock and Roll Star. Yeah. And um, when when I'm uh, teaching music journalism at, at BM in Brighton, uh, we, we do a week about rock books, and I go into this. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I, I tell them all about it. And the book, for those who haven't read it, it, it covers Mark the Hoople's five-week American tour. It's um, November, December 72. Mm. And what it does, it, it, it strips away the... Um, glamorous facade of rock and roll to show the reality behind it. So yeah. even though it, Mott, Mott are a glam band in a glam era, it's it's an anti-glamour book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, it, it starts off with Ian Hunter um, cleaning cat droppings from the, the floor of his flat. Um, huh. And and also, the, the way it really works, it, it, it contrasts the tastes and cultural expectations of a working-class, football-shirt-wearing British rock band with, with the high life of... Los Angeles into, into which they've suddenly mm. been been pitched um, so that ev- even the idea of fresh orange juice blew their minds at yeah. the time coming from 1973 Britain um, I've, if you don't mind I've, I've got um, a couple of extracts here no, I was going to read out please. Um, so there's a bit here um, he goes the next time you see your rising idol roaring down the road in his Jensen think twice he's probably got it on HP he's probably up to his ears in debt and he probably ain't got the price of a pint in his pocket so that was that's early on that gives you an idea of, of you know the angle he's going for on this and then I love that and and then he, he goes also I'm sunbathing on the roof of the hotel my lily white body is naked but for Woolworth's trunks <laughs> it's just so British and then he goes um my bowels are in a ridiculous state and Trudy his wife braves the smell like a trooper oh good old Trudy yeah, but a great book. Yeah, every, it's it's considered by a lot of people to be the you know certainly the greatest rock autobiography of all time. Mm. Everyone should should uh, should read that book. Yeah, they should publish it again. So is it fucker not, is to it get print? hold it's of? Quite, is it? Is it? Right, yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. terrible. But I mean, you do say football shirt wearing as if that's really common, but not in nineteen seventy three. Football shirts weren't a thing for for the for the general population. The only way you'd have got suppose, a football shirt yeah. is if a footballer had given it to you, or They'd thrown it into the crowd. Yeah, it was scars, rosettes, um, basically, maybe some sort of hat joy, and that was about yeah. it. It was a weird shift, you know, when you had replica hits and the people that turning up in the actual shirts as if they're sort of adults openly yeah. kind of, you know, vicarious about the idea that like they wish, you know, they feel that they're kind of, you know, almost players by osmosis or whatever. Yeah. So that yeah, that hadn't occurred to me that maybe Ian Hunter walking around in a Hereford United shirt was actually large in it. You know, he was yeah. like, you know, like showing off a bit. But yeah. yeah, I can afford an actual football kit. Yeah, which would have mean meant nothing to the Americans there. No. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> because what's the one that Derek Smalls was? It's Shrewsbury, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Oh well that, that's that's surely a direct reference. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. David, what are you saying about this? Do you know what? I think I've actually got nothing whatsoever to say. I'm sorry. I stared blank on well, the then. fact that, yeah, it's obviously kind of, you know, um, all the young wildest dudes. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> the thing with Mott is a lot of it was rock about rock and rock about the, the, the life of being on the road and all that. And if, if, if you look at the lyrics to this, it sort of mentions Chuck Berry and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's yeah, you know, and, and that, that was kind of their thing that they were, they they were a touring band who who were already nostalgic by the time they made it big. They're, they're singing about, do you remember those Saturday gigs? Do you, do you, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Those Saturday gigs that we're, we're going to do in a few years' time <laughs> when we're on our arse. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> and and um, it, it's it's kind of it's that thing I was saying earlier on about convivial yeah. music. They do have that kind of that that human warmth to them that, that I think appeal to people more sometimes than the quality of the yeah. songs themselves. The following week, Honolulu Booger jumped eight places to number fourteen and would eventually get to number twelve. The follow up all the way from Memphis would get to number 10 in September of this year and they'd round out 1973 with Roll Away the Stone which got to number 8 in December. And that Pop Craze Youngsters is the end of that episode of Top of the Pops. So on telly afterwards, BBC One pitches straight into a repeat of Star Trek where Captain Kirk proves to have a powerful antidote to the peculiar potency of a woman's tears. Uh, Probably by saying, on my planet, we call this kissing. (laughs) And then it's Wells versus Porth Call in a British heat of It's a Knockout. Then the 9 o'clock news, the drama series Spy Trap, Robin Day interviews General Sir Michael Carver about the army's current mither in Northern Ireland in Talking Today, and then rounds off the night with the Esther Williams film The Bathing Beauty. BBC Two is broadcasting Percy Thrower from Clax Farm in Worcestershire for Gardener's World, followed by Money at Work, a Russian interpretation of Hamlet, and finishes with News Extra. ITV has just started an episode of a Y50, then the James Beck comedy vehicle Romini Jones, the forerunner to the classic Yus My Dear, then Hadley, the drama series about Yorkshire's most eligible bachelor, followed by News at 10, Probe, the interview show with a Tory MP, and then the 1955 thriller The Night Holds Terror, and ends with At the End of the Day. So... What are we talking about in the playground the day after the day after tomorrow? Well, we should have been talking about Barry White. We should have been saying, fuck it, yeah. <laughs> that, that was, you know, the nuances and undulations represented sexuality in a way that even future modes like techno can't hope <laughs> to achieve. It's what we should have been saying when it's turned 11, but we're all singing on to rubber bullets and ch- changing rubber bullets to rubber johnnies, basically, um, is what we were talking about. But yeah, we would have been talking about rubber bullets. If I'd been allowed to watch Top of the Pops, I think the next day I'd be talking about, did you see that funny man who looks like Abraham Lincoln uh, putting on a German helmet and talking in a funny German accent? I mean, how do you think, how do you think Kenny Everett came over on Top of the Pops? I mean, he, he, he's, he's, a, he's massively different from your, your standard fare of this time. I feel like his hands were tied. I, I, I feel like um, he's, he's got his shtick and he's happiest when he's in control of his element, when he's in the studio, uh, when he's mucking around with reel-to-reel tapes and carts. But when he's doing something that someone else is, someone else's production, there, there are rules, there, there, there are ways of going about doing Top of the Pops. Uh, I feel he's a little bit restricted and, and his frustration with that shows and he's not giving the best account of himself. And mm. um, what are we buying on Saturday? Well, what are we buying tomorrow? Well, I did buy Rubber Bullets, the single. I think the B-side is Waterfall, uh, good man. Like, which is sort of thematic. Uh, um, so, yeah, it's one of the first things they ever actually... Um, Purchase actually uh, with some birthday money, I think, something like that. And Slade, obviously. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Although I didn't actually buy that at the time for some reason. It was um, I was eventually presented, I think, with a kind of Slade's Greatest Hits type thing uh, and got it that way. Sladeist yeah. that yeah. came out later on this yeah, year, yeah, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. Wait for that. Mm. Um, I like to think I would have bought the 10cc single. 
and probably wouldn't have figured out what it meant until 10 years later. And that's fine. That's how pop works sometimes. Mm. And what does this episode tell us about the summer of 73? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about there's there's not a lot of glam. I mean, it's almost like you're getting slightly past glam into the very, very earliest hints of a sort of near rock and roll or whatever. And I mean, it was strange, really, because it's probably everyone's feeling that, like, you know, rock is the genre's kind of wearing on a bit. It always feels any time, whether it's 1973, 1986, or whatever, or 1999, or whatever. It always feels like it's five minutes to midnight in in pop and rock culture. It probably is right now, but you know, it kind of used to have these kind of false sense in the past that things were drawing to a close and the twilight, and you're getting into reminiscent nostalgia and postmodern reflection, all that kind of stuff. And maybe you know, the, the, maybe the glam thing is just beginning to sort of dim at this particular point. I mean, it's just ironic when you got um, "Merry Christmas, Everybody" and the end says, "Look to the future now; it's only just begun." But it's almost like that was their last hurrah as well, you know. I actually think that for all the kind of um, political strife and just general grimness of Britain in 1973, people were, on some levels, loving being in 1973. And there is quite a lot to love. Yeah. I mean, I, I see the, uh, the 70s now in Britain as, as the working class 60s. Mm. <laughs> I really yeah. do. No, yeah, I yeah, really yeah. do. The, yeah. all, the, all the freedoms that you know, were supposed to be happening in the 60s. It took it took a decade or so for them to reach our lot. Yeah, absolutely right, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the British culture in the 70s is absolutely, if you take the working class element out of the culture of the 70s, you ain't got much left. <laughs> and that, pop crazy youngsters, is the end of another episode of Chart Music. All I need to do is the usual promotional flange uh, www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast and you can reach us on twitter at chartmusictotp thank you very much David Stubbs and ta to you sir ta ever so Simon Price thank you my name's Al Needham and if you want my opinion Tracy Unwin was fucking asking for it <laughs> <laughs> Sharp music. The new hot powered compact from Hoover. It's a beautiful mover. The new compact does more than beat. It also cleans, it also sweeps, and brushes right to the edge. Right to the edge Changing a bag as easy as ABC The new high power compact mover It's a beautiful mover Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.